Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we perniciously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are loving send-ups of a film's source material. Where a movie may pay tribute to the adventure serials of old, novelizations can then take the next logical step, transcribing the visual and audio experience back into ink and paper. This natural evolution opens the door to further homage, the back cover summary and the chapter headings imitating the very serials and magazines that inspired them. But novelizations are not simply a film pressed onto a page, a negative photograph of a more luscious experience. Through their zippy action, fun and light and engaging, these books expand and, quite literally, color in the film that begat them. Whether reveling in the detail of their imagined world or using chapter breaks to ratchet tension beyond even where a film could, these books take the opportunity given to them and run with it. Novelizations put the work in and prove their necessity. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. I'm Johnny Pomato. Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is a 2004 science fiction action-adventure film directed by Cary Conran. Conran, a first-time director, spent four years creating a black-and-white teaser for the film in his living room using only a blue screen and a Macintosh computer. The teaser won over producer John Avnet, who convinced producer Aurelio De Laurentiis to finance the film without a distribution deal in place. Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow moved forward and was later distributed by Paramount Pictures. The film follows Joseph Sullivan, the titular Sky Captain, commander of the Flying Legion, a private air force regularly tasked with defending New York City and the world against eccentric villains and their murderous creations. When a string of kidnappings results in the disappearance of one of Sky Captain's own inner circle, he must team up with Polly Perkins, an intrepid journalist and old flame, and venture into lands unknown. And some people might say that really he teams up with Polly, and Polly's the star of the movie. But who can say? We might get into that that central disagreement, yeah. (laughs) We may, we may. The novelization of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow was written by Kevin J. Anderson, based on the screenplay by Carrie Conran. Oh, It was published... Oh, sorry. What? No, no, no. Uh, you you said Did I all say, of the. Say no, it bad. <laughs> no, you said that also beautifully. I ju- I just I hate to tell you this, but microphone cap. Ah, oh, you dog. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> um, for a second, I literally went. Is that a thing that I forgot to do? You got me. You got me. Sorry. Good. Sorry. I'm... That's the last one of those I'll do. Yeah. Thanks. Don't, we don't need to feed into the 1930s. Boy, ain't that girl stupid. Like, we don't need to do it. Um, yeah, that, that bit of nostalgia, did we really need to resurrect? I don't know. Oh, well, we'll get into it. But anyway, the novelization was published by the New American Library and Penguin Books in June 2004. Back to you, Overby. <laughs> I appreciate it. Who is Kevin J. Anderson? Kevin James Anderson is a science fiction author most well-known for his Star Wars and Dune spin-off novels. Born in Racine, Wisconsin in 1962, Anderson was first drawn to narrative fiction at the age of five. Having seen War of the Worlds on TV, Anderson was completely captivated and could not get the story out of his head. Without the modern ability to rewatch the film at his leisure, he instead took a notepad and hand-drew as many scenes from the film as he could recall. He then laid them out on his bedroom floor in narrative order and told the story of the film out loud. He attributes his love of graphic novels partly to this experience. A novelizationist later in life, Anderson seems to have always been one at heart, his humble beginnings being an adaptation from film to page. 
Anderson sold his first novel, Resurrection Inc., at 25 years old. It was favorably reviewed and subsequently, I learned how to say it, Hannah. I'm really proud of you. Subsequently, thank you. He fell into the momentum of a prolific novelist. After he had published 10 of his own science fiction novels, Anderson came to the attention of Lucasfilm and was offered the chance at writing Star Wars novels. To date, he has completed 54 different projects for them. Anderson appears to thrive in collaborative projects, co-authoring many books. He has written an entire steampunk fantasy trilogy with Neil Peart, the drummer from the band Rush. In 1997, Bantam Books committed to a $3 million contract with Anderson and Brian Herbert, author Frank Herbert's son. The deal was for a trilogy of prequel books to the original Dune. Presumably discovering immense artistic chemistry, Anderson and Herbert have surpassed that number and so far written 10 Dune novels together. In 2002, Anderson released the steampunk adventure novel Captain Nemo, The Fantastic History of a Dark Genius. The central premise was that many of the fantastical concepts Jules Verne wrote about existed in real life and were told to him by the real Captain Nemo, whom he had grown up with. The success of this steampunk novel led to Anderson being offered the novelization of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and, later, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. As of 2022, Anderson continues to write Dune books as well as original works. He received extremely high billing in the end credits of Denis Villeneuve's 2021 Dune adaptation as creative consultant Kevin J. Anderson. I I think it may literally have been the, the first card after directed by because i remember i had been messaging him on twitter and it was like basically the first name that came up at the end of the film okay a little bit of housekeeping before we jump into this episode this is our season two finale but unlike last time we're not going away coming on monday the 14th uh we're going to have a bonus episode on matt reeves the batman uh and then after that we're going to be dropping little crumbs little mini episodes on any number of things. So it could be an addendum to a previous episode we've done. It could be a junior novelization that's particularly short, but uh, we'll be sticking around, so your feet will be active. The next big thing we have coming up is a mini-season starting on May 26th, where we're going to cover the five Friday the 13th novels written by Eric Morse. Now, these are not novelizations. They are tertiary tomes. Uh, I'm not even clear at the time of recording whether they're spinoffs, sequels, really what they are in relation to Friday the 13th. But I'm going to watch, I guess, like 13 movies and then read five books. And it's only I'll 12. I think it. it's only 12 movies. So, Is there not a 13th Friday the 13th? Not yet. Uh, one long gestating one uh, that I, I think is yet to be made. Right. That's like one of those those endless legal battle yeah. things. Um, and then so we'll have five of those coming to you starting May 26th. And then pretty soon after that, an entire third season of novelizations. Okay. Joining us today, our guest is the host of the podcast, The Next Picture Show, a writer at The Reveal, uh, as well as at TV Guide. The Ringer, GQ, and Vulture, and he's the author of the upcoming book, Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career, which will be out in just a few weeks on March 29th. Keith Phipps is our guest. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start off by asking, what, if anything, was your relationship to Sky Captain before jumping into this book? 
Um, I'm well. Thanks for having me. First of all, um, I, I'm very fond of this film. I had not seen it in a, in a few years. Um, I, I, I was my memory was I was I reviewed it for the AV Club where I was working at the time, and my my memory was I was one of the few positive reviews. But if you go to Metacritic, it actually had quite a, I mean more positive than negative, and some real raves from. I mean, Roger Ebert was was a big fan, and and uh, it has another a, a lot of other high profile, much more high profile than me supporters. Um, so, uh, and yet it's one of those films where the critical reception has kind of been overshadowed by the fact that no, no one went to see it apparently. So, um, although, you know, I, I was, it was fun to revisit. I think, it, I think it looks, uh, it's still a cool looking movie, kind of a interesting one of a kind film. And yet I also feel like a lot of what we see now, particularly with the MCU action scenes are not so far removed from what they're, we're doing with this one. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that some more. The, uh, article that, I revisited before reaching out to you is actually not the AV Club one you had written, but the um, Out of the Past one you had done from The Dissolve, <laughs> which was a, a, a pretty short article, but the, the tenor of which was very much you going, this was actually good. This was pretty yeah. good. Check it out. <laughs> I, I'd forgotten I did. A, I, I forgot I did a second piece on that. But yeah, you're right. I think that was sort of a, uh, a more of us like our like, kind of little, little recommendations, like random recommendations segment. So uh, uh, yeah, it was definitely good fodder for that. We like to find things that were a little uh, perhaps not on everyone's radar. So this was uh, uh, sadly not on a lot of people's radar. Um, that was probably like 2014 or so. I feel like it has a little bit more of a revival in recent years as people have either rediscovered or grew up with it or, or whatever. Possibly. I feel like <laughs> nobody speaks about this movie personally. <laughs> I had I mean, not I seen it before like, you know, a month ago. And uh, I, I, I think aside from the internet, just like, you know, being that I'm like on Letterboxd and stuff, I, I don't think I would ever hear about it in real life. Hmm. You know, as a person who's a big fan of Jude Law, I had seen the movie. <laughs> Things like that will bring you to Sky Captain. <laughs> so that's one vote of confidence for Sky Captain. We have someone in our midst who turned on the film. Johnny, oh, no. what happened? You were so excited to rewatch this movie. I, I was pretty excited. I, uh, you know, no one went to see this movie theatrically when it came out, but I did. Uh, I was there day one with uh, my good friend Jen Locke, uh, big Paltrow enthusiast, G. And, uh, and you know, you know it, it was an exciting time to be alive. I, th I think this was the, the fall in which Jude Law had six movies in three and a half months, something like that. Uh, you, you know, they, they, uh, Chris Rock made jokes <laughs> about it at the Oscars and Sean Penn got upset. It, it, it was, it was a, an exciting time to be alive. Uh, this movie was made for me. I remember being so excited to go see it. And uh, we, we did it day one, walked out of the theater, absolutely loved it. It, it was just like, you know, catnip for me oh, oh yeah yeah the giant robots stomping through uh, manhattan and i remember the effects looking uh fairly revolutionary at the time watching it again i i still appreciate the spirit of the film like immensely i love what they're going for i wish that we got more things like that in this era uh and uh and yet i i was kind of bored by it and i was really amazed by how uh hazy it all looks like everything is very foggy or drowned out with uh, searchlights and such. Uh, I assume to mask that the effects just, you know, aren't as good as maybe I thought they were in 2004 or six, four. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, but there's still a lot about it. I like, I think it does sort of like hit a dead stretch in the middle, but uh, it, it, it kind of won me back by the end. You know, I, I like how 
supremely weird it gets. And, uh, you know, I, I do like uh, Paltrow in this movie. Uh, Jude Law, uh, this time, though, uh, I thought he looked a little bored. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, so I have mixed feelings about this movie. My, my good friend Jen, who I saw it with, no longer with us. And I, I it made me sad that I couldn't call her up and, and bond with her over this and, and try to recapture some of what, uh, you know, captivated our hearts so much the first time. But, uh, you, you know, a mixed reaction. Pretty unfair but thing to hold against the movie, that, though. <laughs> uh, my uh, somewhat tepid revisiting response to the film uh, only helped the novelization. Yeah, what did uh, what do we all think of the novelization? What uh, just sort of initial thoughts on on the book? Uh, I really liked it. I'm a huge fan of like 30s pulps. Like I've read a lot of Doc Savage and The Shadow and all of that. And so like this novelization was like very impressively like in the tone and style of those. Um, and like Johnny was saying, I think it really like takes what the movie is doing and sp- it like is great. Like it really, the, I've lost my trail. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Good book. I'm just so caught up in how much I enjoyed reading it. It's fast. It's fun. It like takes these characters who are maybe a little flat in the movie and gives them a little kick. And it's just like a good time. I had a. It's a quick read, and I had a good time with it. I think you're right about the characters too. I, I, um, I think Paltrow's uh, really good in this. Um, Law. I'm not sure he's the best casting for it. Although I generally like him. The real dud <laughs> casting for me is Rabisi as as Dex, who's supposed to be like this this. Jimmy Olsen, boy wonder type, and and he just comes off as kind of da- dour and sad. It is know? shocking that Giovanni Ribisi is in that role. Like I knew he was in the movie. I had seen the movie twice before in my life, and I knew that Giovanni Ribisi was in that role. And reading the book, I couldn't fit those things together. And then rewatching yeah. the movie, never last night, it was still like, why, why him? What in what yeah. world? I mean, I love him, but. Yeah, nothing against him. It's it's just not. It's just a weird bit of casting. But this is actually probably the, uh, almost, almost certainly the first novelization I had read since I was a kid when I used to tear through them. Uh, and like sort of the days before, it you sound ancient, but the days before my family had a VCR, uh, you know, it was the only way to either revisit some of these uh, some films I liked or just to uh, you know experience them at all. Um, so it was. It kind of brought me a new appreciation for what goes into a novelization. In that, I I never really. I always assumed as a kid that you know they saw the movie and then wrote the book, which is you know I know now it's from screenplays, and you can see how much you know you know how much is just the screenplay. I even like to the sort of episode, you know sort of scene descriptions. I'm sure they, the text is modified heavily, uh, but then you know th- so there's a lot of there's a lot of the work that's done for you, I guess. But there's a lot of blanks to fill in too. And I thought he did a good job, as you say, like you know conver- you know capturing sort of the spirit of homage that's, that's in the film, and uh, uh, it is a fast paced, uh, pulpy read. I tend to reach out to every novelizationist that we um, cover. Uh, if they're alive still. And uh, there's a wide range of materials that they are provided. So Kevin Anderson, uh, I I reached out to him and he said he only had the screenplay and most frustratingly, it seems like, didn't have any concept art. So he, hmm. he, he said, I was supposed to write about these underwater killing machines and I sort of just hoped that it would you know, line up with the movie, which I think it does pretty terrifically. Uh, You could believe that he had seen the cut of the movie in in reference to that that scene where they're they're going at the big underwater monster in in a seemingly like a suicide run. 
But also other authors, uh, the author of Great Expectations said that she was able to just watch like a rough cut of the movie. So it seems like different studios really play their hand different ways. And it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough if they're bringing you in super early in the process. Given how little he had, this book really does match the movie very, very well. Like the visuals, the things, you know, the mysterious robot woman, like that all is very evocatively drawn in the in the novel, I thought. I think Anderson's description is usually uh, allows the movie to come up short. I, like I, I read most of the book before revisiting the movie because I just wanted to, you know, give it a fair shake. And, and, and you know, I hadn't seen the movie in close to 20 years at this point. Um, and... I was reading this thing thinking, wow, th- this is going to be great. This is even better than I remember it being. This is, uh, I-, I just loved um, the description of the-, the robot stomping around Manhattan. And then when I saw it in the movie, I was like, okay, it, it looks okay. But I I, I, uh, I-, I missed that sort of, um, uh, you know, I- there's a lot of references to things like, you know, uh, Polly was dwarfed as if a Lilliputian and, you know, as the foot came barreling down on her. And then in the movie, it's like, okay, yeah, it's walking down the street and you can really see the outline <laughs> of it. Because uh, it's, you know, just a, you know, a, an old primitive uh, computer animation. Um, but yeah, I think uh, descriptively, uh, it's beautiful. And uh, I, I don't know if uh, some of the added dialogue that uh, appears throughout was just taken from an earlier draft of the script or if the movie was cut down substanti- substantially and like Michael Gambone's part was the first thing to go or something. Uh, but yeah, I was uh, really enjoying the dialogue for the most part and then was uh, disappointed when so little of it remained in the film uh, when I finally watched it. But uh, yeah, I think uh, this is maybe my favorite novelization we've done so far that I've been a part of. The Amazon reviews for this novelization would cause you to believe that 80 people total have ever read this book. <laughs> because... <laughs> There's like two reviews that are like, hey, it's pretty good, and then whatever. And then the rest are just from 2004 prior to the release of the movie. And so one of them, Johnny, that you made me just think of is one of the reviews is like, I saw the original short and I thought that the visuals were kind of flat, but this novelization has me so excited. What a dynamic story with incredible action. And I I thought to myself, it's like, if he didn't like the original short, this guy probably hated the movie. I'm sure that was a disappointment. I watched the short for I, maybe the first time. I thought I had seen it, but uh, I was kind of blown away that uh, it uh, that this movie got greenlit off this thing. This six-minute short where there's not a line of dialogue or anything until about four minutes in. Uh, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, wh- when is this thing going to hook, hook in that studio executive who then hands, uh, you know, uh, Carrie Comron a, a big bag of money and say, oh, yeah, go, go and, and, and you know, get Jude Law and uh, uh, do what you need to do. Uh, I, I was surprised by, yeah, I agree that that short is pretty flat, um, especially compared to uh, what came after. But, you know, it, I guess it was a, a, a decent mission statement, a, a decent uh, uh, pitch. But, yeah, ooh, yeah, it, I don't know. I mean, how it's a little well hard it. for me to imagine back to 2002, maybe when like not every single movie was successfully made on a green screen <laughs> and they're like, wow, you can make a whole movie like that. Let's do it. That sounds cheap and exciting. Um, given that nowadays, if you made sky captain today, it would look perfect and it would have none of the sort of like funny things. Like there's landscape shots and movement in cars that just looks, it's just not there yet. And these days it's there and it would be fine and it would not be a special movie in any way, shape or form. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, part of like part. Of, I like the way that I mean, for me, it's it's the effects never had to be perfect. They just had to kind of create a world. They had to like you know, and it, this does that for the most part. Um, and and it, I I wonder if it was too stylized for 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 audiences. But then three hundred was just the next year or two years later, and Sin City was around the same time, which yeah. they might have been a bit benefited from being comic book adaptations, so people kind of knew going in not to expect an exact reality. Um, I'm not sure. I wonder if this was too original of a story. And, you know, this predates the sort of uh, steampunky retro uh, sensation that, you know, uh, everyone would uh, get, you know, glom onto in a few years later. But yeah, uh, it, it was kind of a joke at the time. People were saying like, oh, the whole thing is shot against the green screen. And then about six months later, Sin City comes out and everyone says, the whole thing is shot in front of a green screen. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It looks just like the comic. And yeah, I guess maybe having that reference point of like, you could show the comic panel and then you show Mickey Rourke. It's like, hey, it looks just like it, right? It's like, oh yeah, I guess you actually recaptured it well. Whereas this, it requires you to use your imagination a bit more. And uh, Are we not yeah. impressed by resurrecting Laurence Olivier? Is that unimpressive enough for you? I think it was it's a weird, big scandal right? at the time. And, uh, I mean, it's kind of shocking, honestly. I mean, that has been normalized to a crazy degree. <laughs> now it's just like bringing dead actors back all the time. The fact that he's playing a, a spectral character, I think, takes a little bit of the edge off of it. And the fact that it was like sort of like this novel thing. I mean, compared to what they just did with Mark Hamill on on the Book of Boba Fett, it's far less creepy to that. And Mark Hamill isn't even dead, uh, <laughs> so it's it's it's. I don't know. It's, it's weird. It was. I guess we probably realized at the time, or should have realized at the time, it was going to be an issue going forward. Um, but this particular instance of that that of using that image didn't really. I didn't find that all that morbid. It bothered me so much the first time I saw the movie, and I couldn't say why. It just felt really icky to me. And -hmm. watching it this time, I was like, A, it's been super normalized, and that the reveal with him at the end is that he's been dead the whole time uh, also softened the edge of using a dead actor for me. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's kind of cool, actually. That's clever foreshadowing, for sure. It's like, (laughs) we're using an actor the audience knows is deceased to, to build a twist where this guy has been dead for... 20 years, which I, I thought was kind of cool. Keith, your um, observation that these days a lot of films look similar to Sky Captain, whereas back in the day they didn't. I agree with, but the the chief difference for me is that something like the Marvel movies are trying to have bombastic color, whereas mm. even by the standards of 2004, I feel like Sky Captain is deliberately trying to seem like a faded photograph or to sort of have that more, you know, uh, more exposure. Is that the word I'm looking for? More washed out sort of thing. Yeah. Or kind of watercolory in a way, you know. Um, I, it was definitely their choice to do it, and and I like the way it looks too. With Marvel, I mean, they do go with bold colors, but they all sometimes like the the final fight in like uh, which uh, the, the you know end game or whatever uh, was just so dark and so kind of dismal looking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not a I don't I don't I do like the MCU movies generally speaking. Uh, I just not always a big fan of the action scenes where where it is just it is just so green screeny and there's nothing tactile. With this, it, it's it, it's the whole world is that way. Whereas with the MCU, it feels like you're kind of asked to 
ignore how CGI everything looks versus it being the whole aesthetic of it. Yeah, I'd much rather watch something that looks like Sky Captain that is clearly a choice to have it look like that than Mm -hmm. Marvel movies pretending to be fully realistic films. Then you're like, well, it's not. And I can tell. And it's muddy here to hide effects or whatever. Yep, exactly that. I admire the choice with Sky Captain, but I think I disagree. I I really... (laughs) I'm not a Marvel head. I'm I'm I go to every Marvel movie basically dragged unwillingly by my romantic partner. And I, I you know, I just find with Sky Captain like I I think it's a bold choice to have this specific aesthetic, but my eyes do kind of glaze over like 20 30 minutes in because of the grays, because of the lights coming through the clouds being almost another white on a different shade of white, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it it causes me to sort of lose lose engagement a bit. I remember the visuals popping a bit more, that there would be like, you know, yes, everything is a little green and gray, but then there's Gwyneth Paltrow's crimson lipstick or a uh mm-hmm. you know, or the, uh, the the creatures on the island at the end uh being really uh you know, uh, inventive. And this time I I thought like no, it, it does all blend together a little, you know, um worse than i remember uh maybe it is the uh you know the high high resolution and this was uh coming from a time when we were still seeing movies projected on film i I think for the most part and maybe it looked better in that medium uh than the sort of uh digital upgrade but uh Mm -hmm. you were saying hannah oh i was i was just saying like there are moments where i think this style really pops and works well like in the opening sequence with the robots coming through manhattan there's all that like pointing 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 guns 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 like that kind of stuff um works super well and i think if the rest of the action of the movie was a little crisper a little punchier like if all of that was turned up a little then it wouldn't feel so sort of sleepy to you is sort of a feeling that i have which is why i think like the novelization circling back uh works so well is like you're not <laughs> getting the sort of like sludgy visuals though I, I mean that's a mean way to phrase it i don't really mean it um but all of it's just like crisper and more streamlined and your the plot points flow much more cleanly and it's easier to follow like what are we doing where are we going why are these people here um i found that all like much more um just like easier to know what was going on and where we were going next in the novelization it's not i think the, uh, yeah i think the, the the novelization does do a good job of, of making the story I don't want to say more coherent, but, but like, you know, a better, it gives you a better understanding of why point B follows point A, uh, in some ways it was, it was in, 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 you know, the, the film, I think kind of whisks you along and, and it doesn't always explain things all that clearly, or maybe I'm just dumb. Who knows? No, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, having watched it for the first time recently, I was like, this is exciting action, but why is he going to this place and and it, mm-hmm. it's one of those movies where the second time i watched it because i rewatched it last night i had all of the events out of order which i think is the sign of sort of a screenplay that isn't clear enough i i thought to myself oh the first time they're underwater surely this leads to them meeting angelina jolie no that's another underwater part you fool you know <laughs> i agree that i didn't uh, everything did seem out of order this time uh, um i uh i wasn't uh, it, everything happened in different sequences than i remembered it happening and i do think that there is a stretch of action in the middle there 
that everything is a very samey. And I'm someone who is like, oh, wow, cool. Biplanes and dogfights, that's so cool. Uh, until you see it like three times in a row, and it's like, oh my gosh, again. And, you know, I think the novelization even struggles with that a bit, that he runs out of ways to paint this action. And fortunately, you know, the, the last act really like sort of changes the setting, changes the, the style of what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that it drags in the middle, and that's where I did start to get a little sleepy. The story is transparently a device to string together like every like sort of like pulp adventure setting that he wants to do as if, you know, this was the only film he'd ever get to make and it seems <laughs> to be the only film he's going to get to make. Um, so, you know, you get your Lost World, you get your Shangri-La and you get in Mysterious Island and, and 30s New York and everything. Um, uh, it does feel like... It, it, those The settings were chosen before the actual plot that would take the characters there. So how do we feel about our characters? If, if Howard Hawks had been around to actually reshape these characters and the performances and just kind of let someone else do the special effects, it, I think it would have been good. I mean, he's definitely trying to play homage to this snappy, flirtatious repartee and never really quite getting there. Uh, I don't know that Law and Paltrow have the chemistry that you want, or the characters are drawn all that uh, that well. Uh, it, it's a sort of like an you know a minus for effort, not <laughs> something, something lower for execution. Yeah, every time. I mean, I really want to like Polly Perkins as an intrepid lady reporter, and every time I was like, "You go, sister, you do it." She trips over something, or falls into a button, or does something that is just like unacceptably stupid. There's no mm. reason for the character to be undercut like that constantly. Um, yes, in a way that really bummed me out. <laughs> the one that really bothered me rewatching it was the shortcut through the city where she's like, I know a shortcut, I know a shortcut. And then it ends up being a dead end because other ones you know, are she's like tripping or whatever. Those are like, you know, she's making mistakes. This That moment in the film seems to be suggesting she is like actively aloof in a way that I, I found kind of offensive. As a person who lived in New York for like nine years, sometimes you turn a corner and there's shit there that you weren't <laughs> expecting. I mean, that happens. That hit me as like realistic to my lived experience. It does seem like some of the sexism is uh, treated like it is part of the nostalgia. Like they, they're mm -hmm. they're thinking like, oh, they they watch uh, His Girl Friday and say, oh, okay, I get it. You know, she's the she's the punching bag. She's the the, the you know the butt of everyone's jokes. Uh, we can do that, but they sort of forget to make her a strong and you know uh, interesting character that is able to stand up to that. And, and that that's really a shame because I agree, Hannah. Uh, Polly is the star of the movie. It is her story. Thank you. Start to finish. <laughs> we are following her. In fact, I was amazed at how long it took Sky Captain to even show up. I I remember he was zipping around around the opening credits, but no. I mean, yeah, it's the <laughs> it's the story of an intrepid reporter who goes on an adventure with a mysterious flying ace. I, yeah. Yeah. He's dashing. He's allowed to be British, which is kind of a pleasant surprise. You know, he shows up to be like a hero, but she's the protagonist of the story. It's about her and her camera and her story and, you know, her career, her boyfriend. I was, I'd forgotten how little Angelina Jolie is in the movie. Yeah. It, it really is almost just a glorified cameo, although I do think that that's some pretty strong casting there because <laughs> I, I feel like she is such a has such a star presence you sometimes don't always buy her as a normal human being so this is perfect for her you know this is the sort of like larger than life pulp uh pulp hero heroine yeah she was flying so high at that point oh so to speak i'm sorry um <laughs> and uh 
I remember she was all over the marketing. I was blown away by how little she's in this. All, all I could remember was uh, her line about like, oh, it's a pleasure to finally meet the competition. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. She has this whole like rapport back and forth with uh, Paltrow the whole movie. And really, she's just in and out so quick. Uh, in general, I wish she was in the movie more. I wish Rabisi was in the movie more, no matter how miscast we think he is. Like whenever he's on screen, I'm, I'm happy he's there. <laughs> when it is just Paltrow and Law, it's a little bit like, I would love a third person to mix up this dynamic. There's a shot of uh, Rabisi rolling his eyes. Do you guys know which one I mean? <laughs> There's like a particularly so. upsetting shot where <laughs> when he comes to rescue them at the end of the film, they're arguing about something and it's just an extreme close-up on him just like doing the most <laughs> exaggerated eye roll. And even in Sky Captain, I was like, this doesn't fit. You gotta get rid of this. <laughs> like... I wasn't sure if at first you meant that there's a shot of Rabisi rolling his eyes or a shot of Dex rolling his eyes. I, I, I was wondering if the camera... Oh! Ugh, <laughs> I need to call my agent about this. But yeah, okay. So, so, so it was Dex. It was Dex doing an over-the-top eye roll. That's okay. If we want to count the movie Shark... If we want to count the movie Shark Tale and not count some movie I've never heard of where she has a cameo, this was one of four films Jolie was in that year. Uh, so she was quite busy. So maybe she just had time to drop in for a little bit for this one. Speaking of the um, the f initial attack, which we briefly were, I just want to dip into Kevin J. Anderson's prose for the first time, which I enjoy. My, my take on his writing is like, you guys know me. I love flowery prose. I love when they go way too big and it's borderline embarrassing. He doesn't do that. He's just very efficient, and he's keeping things like zippy and fun and fast. So talking about the robots, he goes... With plotting movements, towering monstrosities stomped in lockstep through an abandoned intersection, looming as tall as the corner building. These robot monsters had arms and legs thicker than the girders that formed the tallest skyscrapers. Round, swiveling joints marked what would have been elbows and knees. Each disc-like hand bore three curved metal claws, a garden rake large enough to rip a furrow down the side of a battleship. Square torsos studded with rivets as large as manhole covers contain the mechanical systems, engines, and power generators. Each armored chest bore the sinister emblem of an iron-winged skull. It's like something that could be understood by a child. It's not like he's doing really highbrow <laughs> writing here, but he keeps it, he captures the mood of the moment. It's menacing, it's exciting, it's exhilarating, it's scary. I'm an Anderson. One of my man. favorite things about this book is like the little hints he drops throughout of like other adventures. But like pretty oh early my on, God, he's yes. like, oh yeah, the New Yorkers were super used to giant monsters and mad scientists. This is part of their life. Like later he drops about like, oh yeah, when Sky Captain went up against the lens master who made giant magnifying <laughs> glasses. And you're just like, yeah, I want to read six of these. I want to see what's what all these goof troop like mad scientists are doing. That was the kind of stuff that, that that was the kind of stuff that made me love novelizations as a kid because it's like a little glimpses beyond the movie itself into the to the deeper world. Um, whether it was like a deleted scene that ended up in the book or just like those things, like those little uh, authorial flourishes uh, that that uh, kind of kind of a little peek beyond the, the borders of the film. And the fil the original title of the film was merely the world of tomorrow. And what I remember happening at the time, at least the speculation was that they retitled it Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow because 
oh, this is going to be a massive hit. We're going to want to make <laughs> six of these things. So it's like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Next movie will be Sky Captain and the Tomb of the Something. And, you know, and uh, I wish. the next one will be Sky Captain and the, the Serpent of Raw. I don't know. It's it, like they, they needed a... Uh, that that subtitle there and thinking i guess that this was going to be a big hit i i do remember the hype for this film being you know just massive i was a big uh ain't it cool news reader at the time and uh they, they were just so over the moon for this like talking about it for probably you know the entire year or more of uh, the production leading up to it but uh, i mean what yeah, if jude law was our 20 or 2000s indiana jones is mm -hmm. the idea right is that this is an indiana jones-esque thing you can do as many as you want he has different adventures he has different friends and girls around he's cool he has a plane we love the sky captain <laughs> right like so, what if johnny what you're suggesting is that sometimes internet hype doesn't translate into <laughs> real world success this is all i'm, I'm having trouble <laughs> it's a rare occurrence but every once in a while the stars just don't align yeah i don't know it's i just remember like any time there was any sort of hint there's going to be a new Wee herman film mm -hmm. the internet went wild and then do you i sometimes forget that another Wee herman film actually came out was made and, <laughs> and people people may have seen it or not Met with a wave of indifference i, I recall yes <laughs> Do you remember that the most recent or one of the recent Pee Wee Herman discussions was the Safdie brothers want to make a Pee Wee Herman movie showing the dark side of Pee Wee Herman, but it's hitting like a, a wall because, you know, what's his name? Rubens wants Pee Wee to be Irishman and the Safdies <laughs> don't want that. <laughs> Shame on the Safdies. They're wrong in that one. <laughs> What? No, they're right. They're definitely right. No, they're wrong. Paul Rubin should be able to play Pee Wee Herman at all ages across all time. Yeah, I remember when Paul Rubens had his little mini comeback, his maybe first one when he was in Blow. It was like, ooh, his first dramatic mm. role. And so he was interviewed a lot for it. And he, even then, that was 2000, I think. He was saying, I have two scripts for two different Pee Wee movies. One is for kids, it's a playhouse movie, and one is for adults, and it's more of a, you know, big adventure, but like, you know, for the the, the fans who have grown up with it. And uh, I'm still waiting. I, I think that the one he made wasn't really like either of those. They were, it, it was fine. I don't know. Uh, but Keith, I disagree with you because I believe Hannah's love for West Side Story is what got this whole possible West Side Story sequel discussion started, right? I don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> Just because I've contributed to the box office of that movie an excessive amount. Yeah, I don't want that like sequel musical. Story? This is the first I'm hearing of it. I'll see myself out. Thank you very much. I'm not here to be made so, fun of. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. That was, that was not a dig. <laughs> Speaking of the further adventures of the Sky Captain, the line you were thinking of was, Though America was not at war with any nation, every year it seemed another mad scientist with another doomsday plan tried to destroy a major city. The way that. he says another twice really <laughs> makes it sound like they're just tired of it. I mean, it really captures, <laughs> you know, the moment in, I, well, Overby, you don't, but in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, where Jason like plows through the subway and every New Yorker is just like, okay, whatever. This happens all the time. That's the energy of the New Yorkers in Sky Captain who are just like, oh, <laughs> another mad scientist back into the bunkers. 
that was the line that really like got me excited for the book. Uh, <laughs> you know, as soon as I got there, I was like, oh yes, I forgot that this isn't just this like, oh, what if this happened? It's a whole alternate history where this is an everyday occurrence. Oh yeah, there's always a mad scientist. There's always giant robots. During one of the newspaper montages in the movie, there's like a Japanese newspaper that has Godzilla on it. Yes. And I was like, this rocks. <laughs> this is a world I do want to spend more time in whether or not the movie is super successful. We're rebooting everything. I mean, who knows? This might come around the pipe. Yeah. When they're at the bottom of the ocean, they apparently pass over the wreck of the ship from King Kong, suggesting that that is canonical. Mm -hmm. hmm. It makes perfect sense to me that King Kong and Godzilla and all of that stuff is in the same world as Sky Captain. Like... If King Kong wasn't in New York City like three weeks before Sky Captain takes place, I'd be shocked. It just feels like the logical step. It's unclear to me whether or not the threat of Dr. Totenkopf, if I'm getting that right, um, is supposed to be kind of a, a, a sub end for the Nazi threat. I, I wasn't I wasn't sure like what was actually going on in Germany. It's a very specific choice to make him a German mad scientist, but otherwise you don't really get the suggestion that the events we know as World War II were about to happen. It's 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 odd that when, when when this reality, you know, kind of butts up against the actual history. It definitely uh is murky and uh the you know, they they do throw words around like master race, but then it's like, well, yeah, but he also just wants to sort of, you know, stand up a bunch of monsters to space. It's like, okay, well... Yeah, he's you know, kind of doing Moonraker. Yeah. Kind mm -hmm. of doing Nazi stuff. Mm -hmm. The uh, question of what's true and, or like what has happened in this history and what hasn't uh, really hung over me with the whole Hindenburg thing. So first off, the Hindenburg 3 suggests that the Hindenburg did not explode. But it did. In the novel, at least. Yes. Yeah. In the novelization, they're like, no, the alternate history here is that exactly the same thing happened. But we just pressed on. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, different, I didn't different get, worlds. Yeah, I didn't get it at the time either at first. It's like, wait, Hindenburg 3, does that mean this is the third attempt? Or the first one was such a success that we're like, we got to make more of these things. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a way to go. It, it seems to me like they were like, you know, it blew up, but the idea is sound. There's enough blimps and airships in this movie. Like the Flying Legion has a series of blimps as well. That it feels like they were like, that's a good, that's a good idea. Let's make that work. And they kept pressing forward. And in the same way that all mad scientists are like, I'm going to make a giant walking robot. That's possible. So are flying balloons. We can do it. Equivalent things. Mm-hmm. Keith, when you were uh, when you were a child, what what novelizations did you read? What what were the ones that really stuck oh, out? Oh, gee, a bunch. Like I read all the the Star Trek novels, the Star Wars novels. The the one I remember most. I well, the the most memorable experience I had is is a, is a great regret of mine, which I was so eager to see Return of the Jedi. I read the novelization before seeing the film. So wow. I know all I knew I knew all the the twists and turns of, of that as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think I don't remember reading Goonies. Uh, the the you know, in in part you know what was striking about that was the the scenes that weren't in, in the film. But I think at a certain point I, I got snobby about my reading and just kind of left novelizations behind. And and we got a VCR, uh, so <laughs> it seemed a little less necessary. I'm glad the tradition has has carried on. 
Um, it did strike me that we must be the only people on the planet reading this particular book at, the, <laughs> at this point in time, right? I'm sure it gets picked up every once in a while, but but uh, you know, it's, it doesn't strike me as one of his more sought after after efforts. And in, in there's uh, a lot of people on Twitter who will post like, "Oh, found a new novelization" or what have you. But it mm. seems like collectorism is alive, but like reading them, I'm not so sure right. about. <laughs> right. They do quite go for quite. I mean, I did, there are some that are quite collectible. I just saw. I was at a bookstore recently and saw the the, the novelization of Spaceballs, uh, written by uh, R.L. Stein, which I, I was oh, was not, not aware of. That was a thing. Uh, if it Wait, weren't fifty dollars, then which bookstore? <laughs> uh, half price books and records. I think in Indianapolis. I was passing through on the way. Oh, from okay. Long, Ohio. So, I walked all yeah. the way across. Um, whatever park I live near in uh, Rogers Park to go to the um, thrift store to try to find novelizations. And all I found was the novelization of the pilot of Stargate SG-1. Did I buy it? Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) I was a little let down. Well, as physical media go, it's probably one of your easier to to collect. Uh, you know, it's, it don't take as much space as other types of physical media. Did you spoil like Luke and Leia are brother and sister for anybody? Yes, I read the whole. Th- no, 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 not for anybody else. <laughs> but I read the the whole thing. But that was a thing. I think that came out shortly before the film. I know I saw it on the first weekend, but I do remember like months before Empire Strikes Back came out, one of my fellow first grade class members had the comic book of it. Um, and I believe that the Star Wars novelization came out some, perhaps like a year before the film. And it was in part because um, yeah, I was re- researching this movie called Star Crash, which is this Italian Star Wars ripoff. Um, they came out so quickly after Star Wars in part because they weren't ripping off the film they'd seen, but they had read the novelization, so they're borrowing some ideas from that. It's a, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting, interesting history there. Yeah, and I think specifically the Return of the Jedi uh, uh, comic adaptation was completed, uh, you know, based on an old script and uh, was released maybe either prior to the film or it was too late to change. And I think it has a few plot elements that were changed in the film and. I think uh, hmm. they, even the the comic books were called Revenge of the Jedi and all the things that were changed. My wife could be better to this than I. She has the giant tomes on the shelf of all of those old uh, Star Wars comics. But yeah, I, oh, sure. that yeah. is one thing I love about novelizations <clears throat> is when you get those little things that, you know, the little differences that weren't changed, like, you know, the gremlins being aliens and stuff like that. Oh, I'd forgotten that. I did read that one as well. I mean, because I'm sure this is a touchstone for a lot of people. But the ET novelization, mm-hmm. I remember being quite quite good. Um, I never read the sequel. Though. We're covering the ET novelization in like a month, so okay. I remember liking that book both as as a you know budding science fiction reader, but also because I believe you learn a lot about. You know, I think it's told from ET's perspective, or or mm-hmm. at least partially from that. So you you learn a lot about. Uh, his planet and why he's there and things like that. Things that you know when you watch the movie, you don't really need to know. But if if you if you're if you're as interested in the world, if you're interested in the world enough to go read the book, you probably do want to know this, this, these sorts of things. Well, as you probably know, one of the things that'll happen in novelizations that the ET one is famous for is the writer will be handed a script to write a novel based on, and then by the time the movie comes out, the script has changed immeasurably. Mm. So allegedly that book is is like 
just differs in story. It's not even just more detail. It has like, you know, entire scenes that are not present in the movie and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I've read it, but that would be interesting to, to revisit. So jumping back into Totenkopf's backstory, remember we were like, <laughs> what's his deal? The, sure. I believe this part of uh, Totenkopf's backstory is exclusive to the novelization. The part where uh, Polly sort of finds a bunch of info on him. Am I am I correct about that? It's certainly more fleshed out in the book, uh, from what I remember. It is somewhat present in the movie. She's like in the backseat of Sky Captain's plane and is like reading from a journal to him about like his awards at age 12 and his PhD at age 17 or whatever. So here's here's the text of it from the book. What did you find, is what Sky Captain asks, and she goes, just some amazing background information. Totenkopf was awarded his first patent when he was only 12 years old. Okay, from the movie. Uh, by 17, he had already received two doctorates and was one of the most highly regarded minds of his day. Then a darker side began to emerge. First, animals started disappearing in his village, only to be found later, dead and mutilated. Victims of unthinkable experience. Then children. Reports of missing children. So he, in this alternate reality... It's like something changed that diverged from our reality, and he's like our alternate reality Mangala? Am I sort of reading that correctly? Or the killer from M. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think of German child murder, I always think of M, so uh, maybe there's that, too. I mean, they, could have brought, they could have brought Peter Lorre back from the grave for this, and it might, yeah. that might have worked as well. Yeah, I wonder why Olivier, of all people, other than for the little is it safe joke that immediately follows uh, his appearance in the film. I couldn't believe that. (laughs) It's also like, ah, yes, a German scientist who can we use? We can only use archival footage. Let's choose the most British man. Um, We can't adjust his accent. We can't do anything like that. We're not going to change that this scientist is German. Uh, a thing that struck me in the film that doesn't matter in the book. It's not a consideration. Yeah, and as I said before, I, I remember people being pretty outraged leading up to it when the rumors came out that, oh yeah, we're using old Laurence Olivier footage and the, you know, uh, you know uh, director Conran was uh, uh, defending it and, you know, people were saying this is like when they were, they, they made those vacuum commercials with Fred Astaire dancing with the vacuum. And then when I saw the movie and you just see him on this monitor, it's like, oh, what? What's the big deal? That's it? That's it? And it's all just this elaborate thing for a Wizard of Oz moment anyway. Uh, which, you know, I, I like the symmetry of, you know, the, the Radio City thing at the beginning. and uh, It's effective. It's really quite yeah, good. Yeah, it's great. At the end of the novelization, when they encounter Totenkopf's visage uh, in the message that he's left behind, and Sky Captain goes, have you seen the Wizard of Oz? That's, <laughs> that's one moment where I'm like, this author did not read the character Joe Sullivan correctly. <laughs> Joe Sullivan is not some cinephile going to catch new films as they come out. He's not like obsessed with The Wizard of Oz and drawing comparisons. Yeah, that movie that came out two weeks ago. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, the, yeah everyone was lining up around the block to go see it. Yeah, yeah. He's too busy saving the world, left, right, and exactly. center. Yeah. Yeah, how often does Sky Captain actually like dock on the mainland? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that he's zipping across uh, the, the, the channel. It also felt to me in the movie like maybe his secret island where the Flying Legion hangs out is Staten Island. They drive mm-hmm. on and off of it <laughs> into mm-hmm. Manhattan within like a couple hours. Tickled my fancy. 
I think there's a lot of dubious geography in this game. <laughs> that doesn't add up. It's like I, I, if I were trying to make a map of all the locations and how much fuel you need to get from one place to another, I, I don't know how any of it works. But, <laughs> you know, whatever. You, you can't think about these things too hard. I think the novelization does invite questions that the book doesn't simply because I simply by referring to this, I don't think that's in the, in the film, uh, they refer to the sky captain Corps or whatever as, as uh, mercenaries, mm-hmm. which makes, you know, I wasn't thinking at all about, you know, who these people were or what they <laughs> served or what their governmental association. And now is, I want to know is, Wait, wait, who, who, who are these people? <laughs> why, why do they do what they do? None of this, I, you know, in the film, you just kind of take it on faith. And then, you know, uh, having read the book, like, I, have more, I have more questions than I thought I had about this, about this world. It does explain why uh, America's greatest hero is a British man. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At first in watching the film, I was actually wondering, it's like, I think Jude Law, I think Sky Captain is British, or is Jude Law just really not trying to do that American <laughs> accent he was told to do? I, 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 you know, sided with he's British by the end, but I wasn't sure at first. It does feel like in reading the novelization, I was like, this is an American pilot. Like mm-hmm. Joe Sullivan is yeah. a real American pilot name. He feels like a real like gung-ho, good-looking guy. Um in the same way that reading the novelization, like, oh, yes, Dex is 19. He's a little twerp. He's a little <laughs> baby boy. So that when Sky Captain tells him, good job, boy, like, good boy, Dex, you're like, that's not weird. That's normal. He's a child. And in the movie, you're like, oh, that's that hits weird. That hits very strange. In the same way that, like, oh, he's British? Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> It almost feels period appropriate too, though. Like you, you know, Cary Grant will just show up as a character, no, no explanation as to why. <laughs> you know, he speaks the way he speaks. He's just just Cary Grant, and and just kind of run with it. I think the the Jude Law performance is pretty abysmal. If I'm being honest, <laughs> he's doing like a disaffected, too too cool for school. He's trying to be like James Dean, right? But he's coming off. I don't know how to say this without being mean. Sky Captain seems kind of dumb, right? Like he yeah. seems I think like he is kind of dumb. But he seems like the type of guy who just can't be bothered to like think anything through. I'm trying to come up with like evidence for this. But when he like brushes people off or when he disses people, I'm not like, oh, Sky Captain, he's so high status. He's like an Eddie Murphy character. I'm like, this guy is just too thick to like, you know, engage. I don't know. This is why, this is another element of the argument that Polly is the protagonist of the story, is that Mm -hmm. he couldn't solve the puzzles on his own. Mm -hmm. He's the muscle, he's the brave guy, he's going to jump onto a platform that's moving, he's going to fly his plane into a building to save the day. And Polly is there to, like, put together the pieces and do the investigative reporting and being like, where are we going? Look, there's a map, now we go here, this thing has lines on it, it's a ruler, and (laughs) <laughs> Together, they are a good pair of heroes who solve the problem. But she's really the brains behind the operation, which is another reason it frustrates me when she's stupid and Yeah, when she's whining about her camera and stuff. I so, mean, she's a horrible she, photographer. She, she, she really is not is. a professional <laughs> photographer. Watching that movie, I was like, put that strap around your neck, girl. Like, <laughs> that's what it's there for. It's- what journalist is taking their own photos anyway? It's like, yeah, yeah you know, she needs her own <laughs> Dex. She needs her own Giovanni Ribisi with a, with a camera going like, Yeah, oh, give me like Willikers, a little Polly. lady assistant. And then, you know, everybody can kiss. There should be more kissing in the movie, in my opinion, as well. (laughs) So we're all pretty down on Jude Law. But, like, 
I don't know. Keith, can you think of an actor like who you like who might have really knocked this role out of the park? You know, someone who like leans into the camp of these sorts of films, but also still has that hero quality. I, I don't know if you, you if there's an actor you're familiar with who might have made a really good sky. <laughs> Fairness Jerry toward Nicholas Cage. I, I don't I'm not quite seeing it. <laughs> I don't see honest. that at all, John. <laughs> I think if we had King Arthur Jude Law, this would sing a little more. When he wasn't yeah. in like total movie star handsome guy mode, but in like character villain mode, like that level of Jude Law, he could have done it. He just wasn't there yet. Yeah. A lot of this movie just isn't quite there yet. Give it another five years. 2004 who would have been good i don't know i had to think about that i mean uh, even like a chad michael murray i think would be good in a role like this <laughs> I mean, Keith, is there some like book that you would recommend that like has oh, an johnny see if there's like a good johnny we'll we'll, we'll grill him on this at the end to do something like this <laughs> johnny's um, like i'm done with this book let's close <laughs> it out <laughs> let's get to I have so many things bookmarked. <laughs> we cannot do that yet. Keith, though, uh, speaking of like uh, characters and just liking them or not, you went pretty hard on Giovanni's performance, but mm. what did you think? Did the book do anything for you in, in the Dex regard? Did it redeem Dex for you at all? Because it puts in a lot of lip service for Dex. It does. He's definitely more of a, feels like more of a interesting presence. That it, I mean, I did just, I was just picturing a, a boy genius you know jimmy olsen type here and 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 Rubisi just doesn't doesn't give that to you uh i found myself thinking about with dex the whole thing about him drawing inspiration from flash gordon it's maybe another case where i'm thinking about it too hard but but uh you know is flash gordon even necessary in this world that's basically a flash gordon world how much of it you know dex seems to have contributed a lot to the science and and, and technology of the time um you know drawing inspiration from flash gordon so there's like this weird kind of ouroboros quality to to yes. this film's uh design and, and and aesthetic uh where it is you know character within it being inspired by flash gordon creating a flash gordon world it's 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 curious uh, and and your head will spin if you, i think if you think about it too hard i think it basically points to the idea that whomever wrote flash gordon is being massively ripped off by dex and <laughs> that person is actually the most brilliant person on earth look just because you can conceptualize a melting beam doesn't mean you can make one okay and Dex can make one. I'm extremely pro-Dex. I'm here to defend Dex. I love him. Um, I like him in the movie, though. He doesn't make any sense. And in the book, I was like, this sweet, sweet boy, everyone who meets him loves him immediately and wants to protect him like a baby. Like, even when they're like, Angelina, you have to help us because of Dex. She's like, oh, Dex? I love Dex. We would do anything for Dex. And I feel that way, too. I'm right there with her. But with Rubisi, he has this, like, this sort of, like, kind of hooded quality to him that I, like, is he actually, I don't remember this movie that well. Is he the bad guy? Does he turn on them or something? I really thought he yeah. did. I yeah. was convinced. And I've seen this movie multiple times. And I was still yeah. like, there's certainly a turn where he's like, I was in on it forever. Nope, just a nice boy. Yep. He already has that sort of like defeated quality that he would have just a few years later in Avatar. where This world where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on this planet mining this uh, this element. But it's like, no, no, you're, you're on Earth and... You're you're making robot you're you know you're making death rays and and looking at robots and yeah you have a little more fun Giovanni yeah he's also like was sorry I'm like trying to do some really fast math which I'm not good at because he he does not read as a young man in that movie you know mm. but I think he was like 
in his late 20s, maybe. Yeah, well, he's about my age. So, yeah, he would have been in his late 20s at that point. Keith, before we started recording, you you pointed out He was exactly 30. You uh, have some affection for some of the decks. Not affection, but you were interested in some of the connective tissue that the book provided, like regarding Dex's backstory. Do you have the... uh, the passage on 168 in front of you. If not, oh, I can I can dive into it. I do. It. Uh, let's see. Let's let's consult a hymnal here. Uh, there's a whole thing about. Mm, let's see. Maybe I, I'm 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 not. I think 168 is when they talk about why Angelina Jolie likes him, and then the yes, 50 whatever is is Dex's like backstory. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> 168 is where they talk about how he had a crush on her. And like there's some sort of possible reciprocation hinted at there. Yeah, they should kiss. They should, yeah, exactly. They should be in the scene together. I don't think they share any scenes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, She really does just check in and check out of this movie pretty quickly. So in the in the movie, it's like, oh, Dex is in trouble. Okay, Mm -hmm. I totally understand now, and I will help you unwaveringly from Angelina Jolie. In the book, they flesh it out a little bit more. She it says she looked at him suddenly understanding. Dexter Dearborn Jr. had developed Mantis Station after reading a Jules Verne novel called Clipper of the Clouds. That's it. That's the part. Yeah. At first glance, the design had made no aerodynamic sense at all, but Dex had insisted on it. And so it goes on to talk about how he makes the whole station. Uh, He invented an aircraft carrier of the sky. Which amazing. Absolutely. Carrie Conran's beaten Marvel to that. <laughs> Big time. This is this is the first Avengers, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the line I, I'm not seeing it here in front of me. It's somewhere here. But the line about his advances are like he had a crush on Angelina Jolie's character. Uh, everyone thought it was funny, but she took the his interest quite seriously. And I wasn't sure what to make of that. Does that mean that she reciprocated, or does that mean that she was like wary of it? I don't know. It's it's weird, and also like, how long has he been building stuff, and how young was he at this point? I mean, yeah. this is the question. Because <laughs> like, if he's thirty year old Giovanni Ribisi, like, yeah, kiss Angelina Jolie, good for you, mm-hmm. man. If he's like a boy genius, it's a little weird. I mean, the crush is not weird because she's like astounding and beautiful and interesting. But the the concept that she'd be like, you know, I'm gonna think about that. Maybe, maybe we have a future <laughs> together is a little weird if he's a a child. I I find the phrase. She took it very seriously. Just funny because when you leave it at that, it either means something very good or she was like, uh, I can't entertain this. I must rebuff every single advance. <laughs> well, she's busy boning Jude Law, so she's busy at the moment. And good for her. Good for them. The part where Polly comes on to the uh, aircraft carrier and... Angelina Jolie says, oh, finally good to meet the competition. And then Polly in the book is thinking, oh, she's so amazing. She's so impressive, blah, 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 blah. And then Angelina Jolie makes a second comment. She's like, <laughs> I was in the place that Sky Captain was in when he was cheating on you. And it's like, the gears started to turn in Polly's head. But at, at that point, it's like, come on, you're going so hard on her that she didn't pick up on it the first time let her pick up on it the first time there's no other meaning for the competition statement that can be mis misinterpreted yeah Yeah, that's true 
That's a good point. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like um, Frankie, the Angelina Jolie character is so mean to Gwyneth Paltrow. Like they don't have like a fun like, oh, we both dated the same guy, but we respect each other vibe at all. Frankie's just like, you suck and I will marry him. <laughs> like it's really quite brutal. Like when they're sharing inside jokes uh, in their underwater planes and like poor Polly just has to be like, I don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds very intimate. <laughs> it's, uh, it's mean. It's mean. They're mean to her. That really reminded me of high school era humor. When <laughs> when they're in the, in the ship and they're reminiscing about an old war story and they're going, oh, the rabbits, the rabbits. It reminded me of when you're 14 and you're like, I kind of have an inside joke with this friend. And the most important thing to me is that other people know I have an inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> They're really hamming it up. <laughs> I mean, that interpersonal dynamic is fun, kind of. Like, I kind of like this other woman who's like, I know I'm better than you, and I will win <laughs> the boy competition. Like, Frankie is so cool and so capable and also is going to steal your man. That's like a fun little element. I wish there was a little more of it in the same way that I wish there was a little bit more of like a lot of the secondary characters. Um, it's just like fun little detail stuff. That, and the book I liked more than in the movie. It's sad that there's not seven of these movies because <laughs> it definitely feels like it would have a John Wick type structure where sometimes John Wick has a car need and then John Leguizamo shows up to fix his car, but other times he's not in the movie. Like, you could see Angelina Jolie not being in all of these, but, like, she comes up any time there's, a, like, a Sky-related crisis or what have you, you know? Since the movie was such a bomb and no one was ever going to spend more money to make another one, I, you know, that's understandable, but... Writing a book is cheap. We could have at least gotten like six or seven more yes! Yeah, I, I Googled for that. that. We need tertiary tomes for <laughs> Sky Captain. I completely agree. We need uh, we need more adventures on the page with, this, yeah. with the captain. At the very least, I am very interested in maybe checking out some of uh, Anderson's other uh, adaptations and other books. I mean, uh, you know, you've mentioned all he's written all these Star Wars books. We might have some on the shelf here uh, on Robin's uh, Star Wars shelf. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm be curious because I think he really does get this sci-fi retro aesthetic really well. He's very prolific. That's <laughs> they just you know it always amazes me with people that can just churn out book after book yeah. like that. I think I read one of his X Files books. That may, that may have been the last novel. That wasn't actually a novelization, but it was a spinoff thing. So um, that might have been the last such a uh, book I read before this one. I think you just said it was the last book you read before this one. <laughs> yes, the last, last, last novelization-type book. Yes, I don't read a lot of books. So I read something in the 90s when it's the height of my X-Files fandom, and then I read this because you guys asked me to, and that was kind of it. Um, yeah, I was looking at the, the box office for this. It was number one at the box office for two weeks in a row, wow. but not in such a way. No, sorry, one week in a row. One week. Uh, but not in a way that kind of gives you bragging rights. It had a 57% drop-off. It was it was displaced at the top spot by a film called The Forgotten, which I have seen and more or less forgotten as its title <laughs> suggests. So it was yeah, it was kind of a sleepy time at the at the at the movies around that time anyway. Not a whole lot uh, of of exciting films that you remember uh, years later. Yeah, I also looked up the box office and I was actually quite surprised that it did as well as it did because I, mm -hmm. I remember the narrative being that it was such a failure. Uh, but yeah, it opened number one. I would have guessed it opened like number seven. I, I remember being like one of the only ones in the theater that weekend. 
Um, yeah, so I, it did, uh, I, I guess, live up to a bit of the hype at the time, just uh, not for as long as it needed to. I think it, I'm not sure it had amazing word of mouth. I think people who were curious went to see it, and then the rest yeah. did not show up. But um, I don't know. I'm still, you know, we're pointing out all the things that are that are not great about this film or somewhat flawed and clunky. But I, I have a lot of fondness for it. I think I think it's I think I still think it's fun. I was just gonna say, if Netflix put out like an animated Sky Captain series, I'd watch it in a heartbeat. Yeah. I'd be so thrilled. Yeah, that does sound amazing. <laughs> Keith, what you were gonna say? No, it has it has the ambitions to be for a certain type of pulp. What uh, readers and Star Wars were for their respective uh, genres, and I don't think it quite gets there. But but the I think the the, the attitude is 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 right. It, it's it's got it's it's hearts in the right place. Yeah, it has so much affection for this genre, and I just wish it had a slightly more capable director. Uh, you know, the uh, Conrad had this vision, but I don't know if he was always able to get to the screen. I kept thinking, like, wow, I wish that maybe Brad Bird had made this instead of his Tomorrowland movie that was mm. also leaning on some of the same retro sci-fi stuff. Uh, because, yeah, you could imagine someone who, like, is, you know, eats the stuff up with a spoon really could nail it if they, you know, put a little more tender love and care into it. Yeah, if, he, if he'd done the effects and then there was someone with a stronger vision of, of, of characters and, and narrative doing the writing and directing, I think we might have, have had a stronger yeah. film than we do, so, as, as fond as, of it as I am. It's a strange movie to pitch to the general populace in 2004 because it relies on nostalgia but it relies on a nostalgia that, correct me if I'm wrong, more or less predates the people who are going to see the movie. So yeah. I was at a writing summer camp because I was a wee, wee child um, when this movie was about to come out, 2004. And um, my professor was so excited for this film. And it was because, you know, the short had been exciting and, and, and sort of it was this whole Cinderella story, some some random guy made a, a short in his living room, and then now he gets to make a feature film with big stars. Even that guy, that professor I had, who was 50 years old and and super excited for the movie, even he was sort of excited for it because his father was into that sort of stuff. So mm. it's a tough pitch in that regard. It's nostalgia reaching so far back. It's not like Chinatown, right, where you're theoretically... <clears throat> making a movie when you make Chinatown where you've got older people who were legitimately into that sort of film when they were young. I think what we're missing here is the context of the weird pulp revival of the 90s, of like the Rocketeer, the Shadow, mm -hmm. the Phantom, yeah. Mask of Zorro, that like, it makes sense that after those were, I don't know, mildly successful, successful enough that they kept trying it. That you would say, like, okay, let's do that, but it's original. It's a new thing. I mean, I guess The Rocketeer is that. I'm not super familiar with the vibe of The Rocketeer. Um, but, like, to say, like, well, look, Batman worked. The Shadow worked okay. We're working on it. I think 2004 is maybe too late. Like, maybe it should have happened a little mm -hmm. earlier to ride that wave. And it just, like, fell in the wrong pocket. Yeah, it seemed like they were uh they, they reached a point where they thought like the technology was of a point that they were going to be able to pull this off in ways that they hadn't done before or in ways that like the shadow or the rocketeer was too expensive and with all their effects and stuff 
Uh, because yeah, it is its own genre and it's a genre I love. Like all those movies you just listed, Hannah, I, I really love those movies. Uh, Me too. You know, uh, yeah, The Iron Giant and like uh, even, you know, obviously Indiana Jones is like kind of nestled somewhere in there as well. Uh, yeah, I uh, I love those films. And, uh, you know, even when they're they're not great, which I think this qualifies, I do appreciate so much what they're going for. I I can be pretty forgiving. Yeah, I'm pro all those movies. And I am pro Sky Captain. I really am. <laughs> I, I wish it had. I wish it was like whatever 15% more successful so that we could all like wholeheartedly get behind it. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I the qualms are real. Like the issues are real. His other adventures sound incredible. The Sky Captains. <laughs> I want to yeah. just read this one very short passage. <laughs> one of the illusions that Kevin Anderson makes to another adventure Sky Captain has had. On an earlier mission against the Rocket Robbers, villains who launched explosive missiles against armored bank buildings and then swooped into the rubble with jetpacks to steal gold bullion. And that and you fight that with a plane. That And rocks. you fight it with a plane. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. I love the idea that Sky Captain is mostly a guy who fights in a plane and sometimes gets out and punches a guy. Like that's so great. It's my type of hero. There's one more that's a complete escalation of it as well, which is on 58, he's, Polly is just remembering back to previous tragedies, and she goes, she remembered their battles with the fossil, a man who, after injecting himself with Tyrannosaurus blood extracted from amber, was converted into an atavistic creature determined to bring back dinosaur rule. So much in that sentence. Okay, not only did the guy inject himself with Tyrannosaurus blood, but it corrupted his own intention. He obviously did it to become, like, powerful or something, and instead he became bent on reviving the dinosaurs. <laughs> like, maybe World of Tomorrow was not the right Sky Captain adventure to start with. Maybe Mr. Dinosaur Man wasn't the correct one, because <laughs> that one sounds amazing. I wonder which Hollywood legend they would have, uh, you know, dug up from the grave to be the villain in that one. Yeah, <laughs> Options are endless. What is considered normal in the world of Sky Captain? So dinosaurs are not still around. It's weird that they're finding, like, Jurassic creatures when they go to Totenkopf. Am I, am I correct about that? Yes, I think so. Even though it sounds like they encountered a dinosaur-related disaster recently. <laughs> and that was weird, too. And then the priest, when they're uh, planning to go to Totenkopf's Island, the priest makes reference to, I couldn't even fix them with my magic. And they don't balk at that at all. Is magic a thing in the world of Sky Captain? Well, Shangri-La mm. is a magical yeah. place. So I guess... It's not normal, but it exists. Which would mean to also theoretically take take place in the same universe as Lost Horizon, right? I mean, it's not like Shangri-La existed before that book. I was wondering. Again, questions. Yeah, I was wondering. (laughs) It's like, is this the Shangri-La or are we using the, you know, the Lost Horizon movie as a reference point? It's like, oh, it's kind of like that movie. The, the, you know, it's it's like the Shangri-La. I was a little hazy on that as well. I believe they all exist in the same world. That's my declaration. I don't know what this book or movie is. Can somebody run it down for me? Oh, Lost Horizon? Yeah. Uh, 
Oh, I forget. To, I forget the author of the book, James Dick. No, not James Dick. Well, anyway, uh, but it's, it was made into a movie by Frank Capra. It's basically people stumble upon this this utopian society located high in in uh, the in, in the the Alps, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the Alps. Uh, yeah, Himalayas, right? All right, Himalayas. Yeah. Sorry, the other big mountain range. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 good. I mean, they're both. You know, I read the book a long time ago, and the movie's worth worth checking out as well. Uh, do not watch the 70s musical version because, ooh, oh boy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Notorious flops. Um, probably a bigger flop than Sky Captain. I mean, I think we've discussed before on this podcast how I really like it when books are friends. So, like, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen works for me. But, like, for me, to be, I guess, Sky Captain exists in the same world as Lost Horizon, as King Kong, as, like, Doc Savage. Like, all of this, like, mingling together. I like to imagine it, and I will declare it true. If that makes us all feel secure, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> Any contradictions be damned. <laughs> yeah. What do we think about the book-specific sort of frills? Like, I'm thinking here, like, the chapter titles, the actual photos in this book. How, how is this thing as a physical piece of media? I loved the act breaks. like the And the little description of, like, last time in the previous pages you just read this is where <laughs> sky captain and polly were left and now the thrilling conclusion i loved all that 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 was a a, a lovely little touch. that was fun i like the the concept art too which apparently we had we got to look at even though anderson didn't um is that kind of standard for novelizations now or because I, I but once i read as a kid I always just had the photos and nothing else i think that concept art is pretty unusual no i mean yeah. I, I was there are like you know, like stills from the movie. But then, yeah, the back set of pictures are concept art, which I've never seen in a novelization before and is very no, cool. And like yeah. makes sense with the kind of story we're reading. You want to be seeing the like technical drawings of the robots. That's all very cool. I mean, there aren't as many novelizations being published with book or with movies like period anymore. And mm-hmm. the recent ones we've read haven't had pictures in the middle. Which ones are you thinking of? Bloodshot didn't have pictures, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a 2020 release. How often, I mean, what percentage of the films now get novelizations? I, I'm, I'm unclear on that. Like, I wouldn't have guessed Bloodshot had one. So few. I mean, like, yeah. the great tragedy of my life is that there's no novelization for 2017's The Mummy, which should mm. have one. That's exactly <laughs> the type of movie that in 1998 would have a novelization. Um, they're just increasingly rare. Here at Authorized, we have, uh, as one of our key features, uh, one of our co-hosts is the only 2017 mummy defender on <laughs> on the planet. It's, and I'm proud of it. I'm you're proud. There's a whole dark universe that you're not going to get now either. I'm devastated. It would yeah. have been great. Like I have that. a thousand thoughts. We're not going to get started on it. It's too much to get into, but... Hannah, you uh, you you just moved into this room that you're in, but I, I see you haven't hung up that... Um, production still that they did of, of all the dark universe people they were <laughs> you I should get that framed printed and framed you're totally right that's <laughs> I might I'll snip Johnny Depp the invisible man out of it so <laughs> that he leaves a little frame but you know just for accuracy now you're really invisible Johnny uh but I I do think novelizations are basically a dying art form um mm-hmm. they existed in my opinion uh, you know, basically for the purpose you were using them, Keith, which is that back in the day, you could sell novelizations to people who were eager to see a film, but, you know, they lived in, you know, somewhere in Idaho where 
the movie wasn't going to be playing for an additional six months. And so instead they would pick up Return of the Jedi and ruin it for themselves, you know? Um, and these days it's it's difficult to get away from a movie like, you know, the new The Batman. Uh, I think about The Batman, the one that we have the bonus episode on in a couple days, a lot because the Batman movies we've had so far mostly have had novelizations. I mean, up through Dark Knight Rises, at least. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that we're getting one for the Matt Reeves movie. Uh, and I think it's because that person just doesn't exist anymore that isn't going to be able to see that movie opening weekend. Or see it again and again if they want to. Like, for me, novelizations are like, well, I saw the movie... And I can't see it again until it comes out on VHS. So I'll just read the book a ton. Right. And plus that window has collapsed. It's, yeah. it's, it's so the time between you can see it in theaters and watch it at home is sometimes not existed these days and and, and much shorter. Uh, yeah, it, it would it would kind of fill that long dry spot between watching the watching the film and be able to watch it at, at home. Uh, but it did seem like everything got novelizations for a long time. I remember, I have a memory of like being as, as in like in high school and being at some like out of the nowhere, out of uh, middle of nowhere gas station and see a novelization for scanners Two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've played theaters and yet someone wrote a whole novel around it. I mean, in the seventies and eighties, like literally everything got a novelization. Like what's mm -hmm. up doc has a novelization. Like I have a novelization on my shelf of the movie Jeremy, which like doesn't exist. That's not a movie and it has a book. It's and it's my just favorite movies. <laughs> really? I love Jeremy. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'll mail you this book after I've read it. You deserve it more than I do. Uh, <laughs> but it's just yeah, it's it's gone away for all the reasons we've discussed and I'm really sad about it. I think there's real value in them as their own art pieces basically. I do think that it is becoming more common, uh, well, and only for specific genres, but uh, I am seeing uh, graphic novelizations of films. Like, mm. I think that uh, when there is a film with a uh, particular visual style, or maybe the Batman will get a, you know, a comic book uh, spinoff or, or uh, yeah, visual novelization. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess because they're catering to that audience, you know, the, uh, hey, if you like the Batman movie, you're probably a Batman comic fan. So maybe that's the form they expect you to buy it. And maybe they just don't anticipate their audiences, you know, they're big readers uh, of prose. But uh, yeah, I, I'm seeing that more and more. And sometimes like with weird things, a lot of like young adult uh, things, I want to say it wasn't Dear Evan Hansen or wait, Actually, no, I think... I mean, Dervin Hansen has a book, and we're covering we're it. We're covering it. It has a book, but book. it also has a uh, graphic <laughs> novel, I, I think. I, uh, I mean, it was such a... Or graphic maybe you just have to be such an unbelievable hit that they're like, okay, I guess people want more stuff to buy. Books, graphic novels, whatever. And that's how you end up with novelizations these days. Yeah. It, it's worth saying that the junior novelizations for children, that seems to be an industry that is robust and going strong. Because... Oh, you know, uh, there's always going to be kids coming out of a theater saying, I loved Frozen, you know, mm. and and the parents like, I'm not about to take this kid to Frozen eight days in a row. So you instead <laughs> pick up the junior novelization of Frozen. Um, those are like, for example, the new Jurassic Park is getting a junior, but not getting a legit novelization mm. from the looks of it, which is which is sort of an interesting turn. 
Well, they want it to be like an easy reading book so Chris Pratt can enjoy it. So <laughs> <laughs> brutal. Um, <laughs> hard turn into a, a something from the book, the Sky Captain book that I I enjoyed. I know we're we're far past talking about Totemkoff, but I really liked Totemkoff's um, characterization as like a clockwork god. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he has all his little machines that run autonomously and he like puppet puppet strings them yeah. right right but like the idea cool that stuff. literally totenkopf where is this 223 totenkopf had his great plan and he programmed all his ro- ro- yeah, robots with very precise instructions even after he died they never stopped those worker robots are finishing what they were programmed to do they don't need their master anymore and i know this is in the movie but i just love it um, don't you see this entire island is Totenkopf, every wire, every gear. He's found a way to cheat even his own death, which is, it is the philosophy of people who believe that we have a clockwork God, which is to say that the universe was created with intention by some sort of deity who then just, you know, washed his hands and walked away, which I, I find very, very interesting, which is to say like, God is, of course, still with us in this theory, but only in the fact that we're born of 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 that creation, that there's zero interference. How do we feel then about the reveal that in his moment of death, Totenkopf was like, I've made a mistake, please forgive me. Didn't bother to stop his machines. Mm-hmm. How did he even die? How did he even die? That I, that he was old, me. man. Old dude. I mean, I kind of would appreciate if the robot, if the robot lady was like, hey, you don't get to stop this. We're doing it. Robots are in charge now and killed him, which is not part of this story. Yeah, that's exactly what I remembered happening, though. Like, in my memory, it's like, oh, yeah, Bai Ling, robot Bai Ling, like, overthrew him. It's like, no, you know, no second thoughts. We're, we're yeah, we're doing this. Uh, I was surprised that, yeah, there wasn't much explanation there. Because, yeah, that, you, you got to add some, like, rich texture to that. That's a, a, yeah. Yeah, a good idea. You can't introduce a robot lady and not give her any sort of a- anything. I mean, like, she's such a cool idea, and then she really doesn't do a lot, doesn't have her own agency or yeah. thought or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she's just, like, another part of the clockwork isn't quite as interesting to me as it could be. Yeah, the reveal that she's a robot is, like, okay. Sure. <laughs> we didn't really get to know her enough to be shocked by this development. It's like, okay, I guess she is a robot. I do like the photos of, in the movie, there's photos of like her and Laurence Olivier in the past. And she has like different outfits, but always is wearing big sunglasses. Like he couldn't figure out how to make robot eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like when things like, I like when that happens in movies when you're like, like in uh, Detective Pikachu, when that lady's always wearing sunglasses and then she's a ditto. I was like, perfect. Love this thing. <laughs> a trope I like. <laughs> Are we out of Sky Captain Duck? <laughs> no, no, I just think of where to go from there. Um, yeah, for, <laughs> Sorry. For, no, it's fine. Uh, I love Detective Pikachu, although I have a lot of trouble with the Detective Pikachu twist. Um, Let's save that for a Detective Pikachu novelization yeah. episode. I mean, there well, must let be Let me do one. a quick... A quick aside on that, though, because I, I, it took me by surprise. It took my daughter, who was, I think, seven when we saw it, by surprise. My wife saw the film and was like, wait, you guys didn't figure that out like for the first scene? <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just me. Look, we can spoil Detective Pikachu. Here's my problem. Is, okay, Detective Pikachu is secretly his dad. Great. Good idea for a story. Detective Pikachu is secretly his dad and detective pikachu has no idea 
nullifies the twist for me. That really, it's like, what's even <laughs> the point? My issue is that Ryan Reynolds is not doing a cute Detective Pikachu voice, which would help hide the twist a little. And also that the movie depends on you being a little bit racist and not being like, well, Ryan Reynolds is his dad because that is a, like Justice Smith is black. And I find that a little, I mean, it's maybe it's clever, but it, it sits a little funny. <laughs> I, uh, I, I only uh, watched uh, Detective Pikachu on an airplane once and I <laughs> notoriously cannot fall asleep on planes but 40 minutes of Detective Pikachu put me right out. So yeah, this twist is uh, news to me. <laughs> I mean, does Sky Captain need a twist at the end? I mean, the only twist is that Tottenkopf is dead. But like, do would it benefit from something a little bit bigger? Maybe not a twist, but more of an exploration of uh, the themes. And, and, and more of a, a why than a, than a what, maybe. Mm. I'm going to... Like sorry, go, go, Keith, go. Okay, I do like the lens cap ending. I like the way this film ends. I, I like films, especially now. I, I like it when a film is just knows when to wrap things up. We're done here, you know. Like I, I think Rumble in the Bronx, Jackie Chan beats the bad guy, everyone cheers, and then the credits roll. It's, it's a perfect ending. <laughs> that like, movie's like eighty-eight minutes. When, when the, yeah, <laughs> I know you gotta know when to leave the stage. <laughs> The lens cap thing, technically on a camera level, drives me crazy. I do think it's a cute beat that she decides he's the most important thing and then fucks it up. I do. It's a good button. It's a cute button. It was the only thing I remembered from this movie, really. You know, I remembered the robots and, you know, I remembered who was in it and, and such. But, you know, uh, when I was watching or when I was seeing my wife down to watch this movie, uh, she was asking me to describe it. It's like, uh, you know, it's like retro sci-fi. It's cool. And the only plot point I could remember from the whole thing was the, oh, I only have two shots and then lens cap was pretty much it. It is both the most beautiful Jude Law has ever looked through her camera lens. Like, it is such a shockingly beautiful image of him. And then when he says to her lens cap, and the last shot of the movie is her face just, like, about to curse, certainly. is <laughs> <laughs> also, like, the most beautiful Gwyneth Paltrow has ever looked. It's such a, like, like visually perfect ending. Like, the dinosaurs are swimming behind them, and they're just two gorgeous people in a gorgeous place being gorgeous together. And I was like, ah! I'm applauding. I'm happy to have gone on the journey. <laughs> I do think she was incorrect in that I think the shot of the rocket ship is at <laughs> least better than the shot at the end before she decides to photograph Jude Law. I think that when she foregoes the rocket ship shot with animals being loaded in, that's that's a mistake. <laughs> it's poetic and clever and cute that like oh she's going to choose to shoot him instead of that but all she has to do is say uh hey joe can you just move over a little this way and i can get you both in the shot you know i could get you and the rocket oh, whatever yeah she's a bad journalist <laughs> not to dwell on this too much but i did just look up um Gwyneth Paltrow and Jude Law are the same age, and that age is two years older than Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> the boy genius thing does not quite work on the screen. I mean, once you cast Giovanni Ribisi, you should tinker with that role. Like, make yeah. it fit him. There's a good fit for him. Like, the early in the movie when he's, like, giving instructions to the other science guys, and he's like, I need this, I need that, do this, I'm Mr. Head of Science. That works for me nicely. But when he's supposed to be like, gee whiz, Captain... That doesn't work as well. Like, just fix it. <laughs> if you want him in the movie, and I get why you'd want him, change the role. Just change it up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you know, Giovanni Ribisi knows science. He almost uses it as a religion, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> How do you all feel about the uh, the trilogy of um, 
Gwyneth Paltrow Jude Law films. Where's this rank? I think it's I think it's dead last for me. Okay, what are the other two? The other Talented two would Mr. be Ripley. Talented Mr. Ripley and Contagion. Where they oh. don't share oh. scenes? I've never seen Contagion. I, they if they share scenes, scenes, it's not a lot. They don't... Sh- well, she's not in it pretty much. Uh, uh, no spoiler. Um... I, I think Talent Mr. Ripley is a great movie yeah. uh, and, and unimpeachable. Uh, and Contagion is, is very good as well. So, yeah, this would be third for me as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a weird combination of actors. It's like they, they do have chemistry, but it also doesn't feel like, oh, I need to see these people over and over again. They're electric. But they're good together, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, The this is all making me think that maybe the cardinal sin of sky captain is inconsistent characterization like something we haven't even touched on or we have a little is totenkopf uh doing all this then having regrets also totenkopf doing all this sort of with a singular mind and then having an escape plan back to a planet that he would assume had exploded behind him right like yeah it's 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 a little it feels a little undercooked when you really start to break it apart. And I'm unsure that they could provide, you know, care and feeding for all those animals aboard that rocket, uh, as big as it is. Where did he think he was going? Like what planet did he pick out and, that was and gonna the work? will be so narrow with just two of every kind. You know, no no offense to God and the whole arc yeah. thing, but I don't think it works out that well. Uh, in 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 the, in the sci- you know, scientifically speaking. And his people plan was not, I'm going to bring two people. It was bringing genetic material. So was he going to, how was he going to end up with people? How does that become human beings? I wonder, like, you know, it wouldn't make sense in this world that like, oh yeah, in this world, uh, there's a, 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 you can go to Mars and form a colony or the moon or something. But yeah, it doesn't even feel like that's the plan. I just think that maybe they're going to float around space for, you know, a thousand years in hypersleep and hope that a, a, a friendly alien mm-hmm. ship picks them up at some point. And uh, I don't know. I, you know, he, he's a uh, you know, German scientist, short-sighted, didn't really think it through. <laughs> I'm not trying to pick nits. I, I just feel like between that <laughs> and Polly being this, like, amazing photographer who, as Hannah said, doesn't remember to put the strap around her neck and doesn't remember to take the lens cap off. It's just there's a degree to this movie that's just sort of like the characters will do whatever I need them to do in the moment. <laughs> when she drops her camera down the storm drain at the beginning. Boy, you wish she had a magnet, huh? She really needed a 150-pound <laughs> pull retrieving magnet from Harbor Freight. So, Keith, just so you know, <laughs> I recently dropped my girlfriend's car keys, house keys and everything down a storm drain that was mm-hmm. seven feet down. And... uh I have a giant magnet now that retrieves such things. So, listeners, if anybody in Chicago needs me to get their keys out of gutters, I am available. I have it all ready to go. So, I spent. That's, oh, that's that's. I'm proud of you. That's 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 that's, that's good thinking. We were all very impressed. I wasn't yeah. ready to to let that like ruin essentially my week. So I instead <laughs> ruined my week by obsessing over it until I solved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And now you have this very useful magnet that would have really helped out Polly Perkin. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Hannah Blackman. Yeah. You. You. Give me a second. <laughs> uh, you can do it. And I'm going to force you to go first, too. So. 
Okay, absolutely. Um, Hannah Blackman, mm-hmm. you are running across a log, or in the case of a book, a rickety bridge. Okay. You get to the other side and realize that because you fell in a very unfortunate way, instead of having the ability to recommend two books, you only <laughs> have the ability to recommend one book. Would you recommend Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow by Kevin J. Anderson to someone who loved the film, to someone who hated the film, or to someone who had no relation to the film at all? I would recommend this book to anybody who liked adventure stories. Like if someone was like, hey, you know, I like Indiana Jones, I'd be like, have you read Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow? Um, I think I'd almost recommend it above, I mean, I not almost, I would recommend it above the movie. I think it is more successful than the movie. It's a super fun read. Um, and if I was in that exact situation, I'd be like, oh my God, do you know what this reminds me of? This great book I read one time. So yeah, I would recommend this thing all over town. I actually, um, because I am currently leeching off my parents' hospitality, have spent quite a bit of the last few weeks being like, I'm at this part in this book, and it's so fun. Here's what's happening. They're going to (laughs) Nepal. It's so thrilling. They're in a dangerous geranium mine. And my dad's like, what? Really? Huh. Like, he's intrigued. I can tell. I'm getting there. Um, So yeah, I I would recommend it for sure. Johnny Pomato, you are putting together... (laughs) a modern-day Ark of the Covenant. In fact, not even modern-day. You're putting together, like, a futuristic... Not of the Covenant. Diesel Just punk. an Ark. Oh, God. Ark. ark. <laughs> no, I'm doubling down. You're putting okay. together an Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> the only way you can conceive of this new Covenant Ark surpassing the original is if it contains a terrific book. How's this going? <laughs> um, you're able to put one book in. Would you put in... Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow by Kevin J. Anderson. Well, I'm disappointed that my scenario didn't involve me waking up nude after my irradiated <laughs> clothes were burned. But um, uh, yeah, I thought that this book was absolutely delightful. Uh, you know, if perhaps I uh, didn't like the viewing of watching the film again as much as I did that first time, I might blame the book in part because I was having so much fun with it and it just wasn't quite living up to this. It didn't feel like a novelization as much as it did like a, hey, was this movie actually based on a book? Did did I just not know that? And this feels like a really well-drawn out book. Um, You know, even though I do have some quibbles with the film itself, Like I said, I have a lot of affection for it. Reading the book, finishing the book, and discussing it with all of you makes me enjoy it even more. You know, it's risen a bit in esteem in my mind. Um, So I do still like the film, but I agree that the book is better and uh, kind of does what the movie is trying to do uh, in a more creative and descriptive manner. So yeah, I would recommend the book, uh, and I would recommend uh, seeking out more uh, uh, Anderson book, because the guy's got the goods. Mr. Keith? So the question is, it's a quite, ultimately the question here is book or movie? Is that, is, is that what we're saying? We're, ultimately we're the question here? is like, would you recommend the book? And if so, to whom? Let, 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 let Hannah do a belabored scenario though. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try and make it very clear what the actual question is at the end. Keith, you are a German scientist who has built a lot of machines to do a lot of things. And you've spent 30 years alone in a beautiful library full of interesting books, and you've read a ton of them. And in your dying moment, you think, I need to leave something behind me so that if anyone ever finds my corpse, 
they'll know that I really put thought into what I was doing. And you decide you're going to recommend one of the many, many books you read over 30 years of isolation. Would you recommend Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow? And if so, would you recommend it to someone who liked the movie and you think might enjoy the book? Someone who didn't like the movie but might like it anyway? Someone who hasn't seen the movie? Someone who doesn't read books? Etc. So in this scenario you lay out, this will be the one book I chose of all the books of creation <laughs> yes. to pass on. So in that case, exactly. No, I don't think I don't think it can quite hold up to that <laughs> standard. But I did enjoy reading it. I, I will say that you know ultimately, I, I it, it is an enjoyable um, enjoyable read. Uh, it's not ambitious on the level that the film is ambitious, even though uh, if it, if it, you know, it's, if his ambition is obviously, obviously to translate the film, but also to do a kind of nice homage to a certain era of, 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 uh, of science, of genre writing. Uh, it, it, it's fine. It does a good job at that. I enjoyed it, but I, I think the film is trying for, you know, for something a little, you know, more daring than that. And if it doesn't quite reach there, it, it is, you know, there's a little more going on there, but, but if you, if ultimately your question is, is this book any good? Like, yeah, sure. It's good. <laughs> I'd pass yeah, it along. Ask Perhaps an not above, Very good. It, yeah. Probably not above all other books, but, but yeah, sure. <laughs> top five, you know, we've never claimed that these situations are not um, really wrought. They're sweaty, but that's how we do it. Andrew. Hi. You're a fancy flying ace, and you spend a lot of time in your plane. Sounds like an you... advertisement. <laughs> 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 you have autopilot, so you spend a lot of those long hours reading books. And when you return to your base, you have a little buddy who loves to read adventure stories and get ideas from them. Would you recommend to your nice little buddy, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, is a book he should read? My little buddy, who's much, much younger than me, and it's extremely clear to everyone. Um, yes, yeah. I would absolutely recommend it to this this boy who could be my young son. <laughs> it's it's not one of my f all, like favorites of the twenty novelizations we've read, but I think it is light and it really gets the action across. And um, for me, I'm just you know I'm I'm just all about things being like intricate and, and really flowery and stuff. So this book doesn't quite deliver on that, but it it really pluses up the movie in a way I love. Um, I sort of talked about it before, but just for the listener, the thing that's great about these chapter headings is that you finish a chapter, there's three titles for the next <laughs> chapter that read like the author's notes for what must go into the next chapter. So... In a very exciting font, it'll say, Chapter 12, an X on the map, the mysterious woman returns, a watery end. And it's it's like a teaser for something I'm literally about to do right now, but it still excites me. <laughs> so, yes, I'm a big fan of, uh, of the book. I could read a hundred of those crazy allusions to other things that they have fought. Oh, one time we put, you know... You know, there was a guy who, you know, went into the fly machine with a dog. And, you know, that's that's like what I, I, I could read a hundred of those. Um, and oh, that's also, by the way, what I just wanted from Spider-Man No Way Home. I know that's a crazy tangent, but you know how the three Spider-Men met and all of them seemingly had basically encountered a lot of the same people. It was like, you know, Spider-Men tend to like encounter green goblins or whatever. I really wanted... Um, what's his name, Tobey Maguire, to show up and just have all this info that the other ones didn't have because he had like 20 years on them and be like, 
oh yeah i'm like fighting cement charles you know (laughs) 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 anywho keith phipps can we as we plug the things you do can we can we grill you on the cage book you've got some cage heads on your hands yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it occurs to me I actually need. <laughs> it was delayed because of COVID. Uh, it was supposed to come out last fall. I was just fine. This is better to come out now. But but I actually need to reread the book at some point so I remember everything that's in it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Cage, grill me about Cage. Go, go. So, yeah, first off, what is the sort of central conceit of the book? Is this Cage through your eyes? Is this something that's going to read more like a history of the man? What's uh, What's going on? So it's what I want to do is I, I, there's two things I wanted to accomplish. Was one was write about this massive and interesting filmography uh, from a, you know an actor who's never uh, had, had to that point had never bored me, and even having watched all his films, there's a couple of films I think there's, he's a little sleepy in, but I'm always interested in what he's doing on screen. But I mean, I, you know, it occurred to me you follow his career, it kind of doubles as this a way an interesting way of looking how filmmaking has changed. Um, he was always kind of a, a misfit like a, you know, he was never really in with the Brat Pack or that crowd, uh, in the eighties, but, but, um, he found a place anyway, like you know, playing very eccentric characters. And, you know, for a brief period, he was one of the biggest stars in the world. So like what, what happened, you know, what caused those things to align? What was going on in Hollywood? What caused, you know, his subsequent, you know, kind of semi exile over the last decade. There are some personal reasons, obviously, but also, uh, it just felt like, you know, the, the types of films that he, where he was a good fit weren't, weren't being made anymore. Uh, so, you know, I, I, the idea is that, you know, you, you follow, you look at different phases of his career, but I want to put it in context as to what was going on in, in filmmaking in general at the time. It is, it, he's an odd actor to have, you know, to be, you know, to broken through in the first place in some ways and, and odd to become such a big star, but also, you know, what is it about, I wonder if, you know, there's, there are many other people that he's outlasted. And what is it with the continuing inter- continuing interest in, in what he does? Um, and I also kind of want to get at some some misunderstandings. I, I you know the, he's become shorthand for for overacting and 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 you know going too big. Um, whereas I'm I'm not sure that's no, uh, certainly not always the case. And I, I feel like perhaps we've gotten used to a style of acting that's a little less expressive in a, in a way that makes him stand out, but also maybe kind of makes him you know what, maybe we should see more of that. So that's 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 kind of the nutshell, a rambling nutshell to mix metaphors of the of the book. There's that uh, great quote from Ethan Hawke. I'm sure you you know about where he says, mm-hmm. you know, something along the lines of uh, people rag on Nicolas Cage, but he's the only one out there not still doing Brando. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he goes on to say something like, "Who's who's really." made something over the top but but perhaps you know not entirely inaccurate that's like the only one like really inventing things and it's probably since brando things like that yeah i mean i mean it's hard to nail down exactly what he does though because i i think i don't know did everyone did everyone see pig oh yeah that came out last I, year i yeah. i love i have but continue that's a, that's a uh, me yeah. problem <laughs> uh, oh it's great it's on hulu now and it's great you should check it out but it, but it is uh in, it's an understated Nicolas Cage performance and and you know it is part of what I like about that film is that it really plays against what your your expectations were you know by bare description you're expecting you know John Wick with a pig and, and it's not that um, and you're kind of expecting 
uh, you know, Cage to go big, and he doesn't. It, it's 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 kind of it's of a piece with Birdie and Joe and these sort of like these really kind of naturalistic performances that he does really well. Um, so that's you know, and, and I wasn't expecting it. I, I got it. You know, the, they reached out. Uh, Neon reached out because I'd heard about the book, and I got an early look at it, and and I was just you know blown away because I was just not what I was expecting, and and having kind of at that point binge watched about a decade of direct-to-video Nicolas Cage movies, of which there's more interesting titles and performances than, there, than you might think, but you know, it's not necessarily like you're expecting a great movie every time. I certainly am expecting a great movie, movie every time that <laughs> Nicolas Cage is in something. I uh, cannot wait for your book, Keith. Uh, it was on my radar even before you were announced as a guest for this uh, podcast. I am looking forward to it. Uh, I, I can't wait to hear your take on Honeymoon in Vegas. I, I, I just, uh, <laughs> th- this book is like it's made for me. So uh, th- that is going oh, to good. be a pre-order slash day one purchase uh, instantly for me. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I and mean, the thing about Honeymoon in Vegas is there was a period that I write about this I, and you know, it gets a whole chapter or most of a chapter in the book where, where he was kind of just doing ordinary guy roles. Like he's just, you know, just kind of, yeah, in, that it could happen of, to you. And yeah, he was, yeah. He was a, briefly a romantic leading man. That's my favorite mode of cage is that mm-hmm. is, is, is yeah. him being the nicest boy in the world. I, lo- yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah, like it could happen to you, and and even like um, in in uh, 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 Red Rock West, the, the great mm-hmm. noir he does around that time, he's a really good guy. Like the whole thing is like you know, noirs are about people who get corrupted by their own greed, and this is someone who, uh, in the first scene. Um, is you see how desperate he is and he has an easy chance to make off with with money from a cash register. He resists. This is someone who's kind of resisting being being a noir hero because he's a good guy. He's 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 good at that. He's it's and it's a it, it's all it, a lot of most of those roles kind of get confined to that period of his career. It's, it tends to be what people don't think about. Um, but it's it's those are some interesting films in there. In reference to Pig. Something I I think about a lot is he does a film like Mandy, right, where it's Mm -hmm. in the John Wick mold. And then he does a film like Pig, which is the same type of plot. But as you say, the character is just so radically different from what you expect in a film like that. Is that intentionality on the part of Cage? Is that an intentional subversion or is it a guy just doing whatever the heck he wants? I really can't tell. Yeah, it's always tough to 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 you know, to, to ascribe too much intentionality because, you know, an actor takes the work that's offered or, you know, right. there's only so many choices out there. So, uh, but I do get the, you know, the sense I get is that he does a lot of work in, in shaping the characters of, of the films he's in. I mean, in, in jujitsu, not great low budget action film he's in, but, um, you know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's his idea to, to dress as, Dennis Hopper's Apocalypse Now character. Because <laughs> 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 uh, I don't, can't imagine that it was in the script, you know. Um, yeah. What's your uh, your personal favorite, like, mode of Cage? Obviously, uh, people think of, like, the vampire's kiss overacting as, as who he is in totality, but we know that's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he referred to that movie as, as a, a lab that he, that he developed a bunch of different ideas about acting that he would kind of go back to throughout the nineties. I, I do, I do love that film. I, mm-hmm. I do also, which is a lot darker than I remembered it being. And a lot more about 
what we now call toxic masculinity. <laughs> I remember it being, mm-hmm. uh, but my favorite mode, you know, that's tough. I, I, it's a matter of, I think it's, I think my favorite mode is surprising, you know, um, because, you know, I wasn't expecting a performance in pig and then Mandy, which is a big operatic horror revenge film. And, and but there's a real depth to that performance too, as, as well. I mean, the, you know, he has those, you know, some memor that memorable freak out where he drinks the whole vodka bottle and, and, you know, after the death of his wife and it is, you know, it's very big. And when I saw it with a crowd at, at the music box here in Chicago, got a little plug in my favorite theater. Um, it, it, there was some uncomfortable laughter, but it, it wasn't, they were laughing at what was going on. I think it was more just sort of, you know, te- relieving the tension. I, I, I do, it, it is, you know, you're express you're expressing mourning in the biggest way possible, but, but, you know, if you, if you do it right, it really works. I, I totally get what you mean. I remember when he had that ex, that big explosion in Mandy. I was like, yes, that's over the top, but what situation justifies freaking out like that mm-hmm. like more than what he's been through? That's actually a very naturalistic bit of acting if you consider that it's the most heightened moment of this character's life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Did you get a chance to see that print of the conversation last week? I did. Oh, it was great. Yeah, beautiful. You know, what blew me what blew me away was the sound design. The, like I'd seen that movie at home, mm-hmm. never in a theater before, but how enveloping that the uh the, the the sound is when you see it you know projected like that. Nothing like the music I, box. Love it so much. I think that that's going to be my first movie back at a theater in 2022. Is I I, I just got to see that conversation print. You can see the conversation and the Godfather in theaters uh, yeah. all of this month. It's it's uh it's it's good for a good time for Coppola films. So, uh, oh, one question about releasing a book that we can cut if you don't want this in here, which is <laughs> Oh, sure. When you write a book like this, you're a podcaster. Did you get the offer and turn down the offer to do the audiobook or were you not were you not approached? I was never approached. Uh, which is fine. I don't think you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll, I can get by in a podcast, but I don't think people want to you know, listen to me for, for two hours at a time or, or whatever. Uh, but you know, my, um, I'm friends with Dana Stevens who did the Buster Keaton book mm-hmm. and, and she did her own audio book. I was like, they didn't even ask me to do the audio book, hmm. but I did have a pick of, of the, uh, they sent me two different narrators and I chose the one I thought was a little, a little more appropriate for the, for the book. Well, I think that your podcast and I'll go ahead and plug your podcast because I, I i love it very much but um your podcast the next picture show which the concept of it for our listeners if you're not listening you definitely should be is that uh an episode will look back on a film from the past and dive into its legacy and sort of uh its lasting effect on culture and then the following episode will be a current uh film that's usually one that's in theaters and has some relation to the subject matter from the first episode. And I honestly, aside from loving the content, just think it's like four of the most soothing voices that I listen to in podcasting. <laughs> on our, it's not just you, Keith. I mean, I love your voice, but like the your three co-hosts, you just have a very like disaffecting uh, demeanor to you that I, I, I really love. So I'm, I'm surprised to hear you weren't approached. My experience in pre-ordering your audiobook was that I went on to Audible and I pulled it up and I, I said, okay, good, Keith. This is this is what I'm looking for. And it's just some other mm-hmm. Keith. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Well, better better to get a Keith, I get if if, if not the actual <laughs> writer, writer of the book. Well, yeah, thank, I'm glad to hear that because I, I feel like the best podcasts are people that you kind of enjoy hanging out with. Uh, uh, so you know, we tr- we try to we don't know if we consciously go for that, but if we achieve that, I I I, I like that. Yeah, it, it's it, I was doing from my co-hosts are Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robbins, and we've all worked together for a long time. So you know, we're we're used to talking to <laughs> talking to each other, which probably comes through on the podcast. So the, the book is called uh, Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. The podcast is the next picture show. You also write for The Reveal. How do people uh, subscribe to The Reveal? So that's that's uh, the newsletter that Scott Tobias and I do on Substack. It was just like we kind of wanted to just have a place where we could write about whatever we want to write about in terms of movies and a little television. So it, it's it's thereveal.substack.com, and, and there's a, a free version and a paid version. And we, you, get, you, get, you get lots of stuff with the free version, but the paid version, you get more and helps us keep us in business. So that's, that's you know, if you, if you like what we've done in the past, you'll probably like this. Amazing. <clears throat> oh, frog in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for joining oh, yeah, us and for yeah, reading this, this book. Was, and this was great. I'd, I'd like to check out more episodes, too. So the the book uh, comes out March 29th. This episode is releasing on March 10th. So listeners, definitely look out for that at your bookstores and also, you know, pre-order, do whatever you need to. Um, uh, yeah, Keith, as Hannah said, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate oh. it. My pleasure. And uh, of course, I'm going to, I think 20 episodes in, I've finally figured out how to end the podcast. <laughs> so the uh, little, this will be the one, okay? <laughs> okay, so in the eternal words of Barry Egan, I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing the suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning with the Sky Captain. You know, from the world of tomorrow. And um, I don't have a crying problem. So I think we all agree that the best part of the Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow book was the explanations of uh, previous villains that Sky Captain <laughs> has fought. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. So Johnny, if you could uh, do me a favor uh, and get me started with a noun, please. Ooh, ooh, we're doing a Mad Libs thing. Uh, okay. Could be. Uh, okay. Uh, 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 how about a uh, banana? All right, that's always a good starter. Pretty good. Uh, Johnny, I'm going to need another noun. Okay, uh, another noun, uh, otter. Wonderful. And then, uh, Johnny, could I get a proper noun? Staying on theme, we could go Nicholas Cage. This is going to be shocking that I'm asking you for this, but could you give me another noun? (laughs) Is this how Mad Libs work? They're all nouns? I know we're going to get to (laughs) adjectives and verbs eventually, but okay. uh, Pipe. Uh, Johnny, I'm going to need another noun. Good Lord. Oh, gosh. I'm, oh I'm running out of posters here. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Piggy bank. Piggy bank. I love that. All right. This is going to absolutely blow your mind, but I need an adjective, Johnny. 
smelly. Return to form. I need a noun. Like noun heavy Mad Lib. <laughs> I didn't look at any Mad Libs before doing this. <laughs> How about beer? All right, and then the final thing I need from you, Johnny, is one sort of compound noun, like Sunday school or burger truck. Or, or piggy bank. I guess I wasted that one. <laughs> hey, uh, piggy bank was good, but I, I know you got more. I will be so bad at this, Johnny, so. Uh, fruit stand. Uh, well, no, I've, I've been a little fruit heavy, haven't I? I think fruit stand's there good. There we go. Okay, Robin says pool table. Oh, You know what? Let's one. do pool table. I like that a lot. All right. Okay, so let me uh, let me read a cap or a uh, passage for you guys from our little revised Sky Captain. She'd been following the exploits of Sky Captain and the Flying Legion for years now, and she knew most of the enemies they had fought. She remembered their battles with a banana, an otter who, after injecting himself with Nicolas Cage pipes extracted from piggy banks, was converted into a smelly beer, determined to bring back pool tables this really has captured the spirit of mad libs in that you're like it's not funny because it doesn't mean <laughs> anything <laughs> and it doesn't really even hang together as sentences yeah that's true i mean that's definitely the fault of the the person running the exercise <laughs> i do have to uh, now that it's like um nose diving i do have to give hannah a writing credit here because i did confide in you recently i was like you know, I want to keep doing bonus content at the end of episodes, but I feel like a lot of my oh, bonus yeah. content has been quizzes, and I don't want to just be doing quizzes all the time. And Hannah said, what if it was a Mad Lib? <laughs> to which I responded, what the fuck does that even mean? And then Hannah came back with, I don't know, what if it was a Mad Lib? And I walked away from it being like, this was a horrifically unhelpful conversation <laughs> and then i sat down to write sky captain bonus material and i was like what, what if, if it, it was, was a, a mad lib <laughs> yeah exactly does it need some finessing yes hannah there's only one more mad lib and it, it does fall squarely onto your shoulders i can't wait to do a good job great i need a noun from you a uh, pen pen is good i need a profession from you um cobbler Already, she's better at this than I was. <laughs> she is kind of <laughs> nailing it, Johnny. I've had some time to like get my <laughs> stuff in order, you know. Hannah, I need an adjective and then a noun. A wet sneaker. That is just beautiful. All right, I need another adjective followed by a noun. A loose door. A verb, please, if you would. The first verb of the exercise. Ooh, a verb. Um, scraping. Hannah, could I have a plural noun? Waves. Incredible. Um, and then could I have an adjective and then a noun? A cloudy day. I love that. All right, so here we go. The lead robot's legs became tangled in the sparking wire, its gears straining. As it stumbled, the other foot stepped on the rolling telephone pole, and the enormous mechanical monster lost its balance. With painful grace, the robot giant, the robot giant slowly began to topple. Sky Captain watched the huge walking monster fall. On an earlier mission against the Pen Cobbler, a villain who launched wet sneakers against loose doors and then scraped into the rubble with waves to steal cloudy days. I like that guy. I like that guy too. Yeah. That guy sounds interesting. Yeah, that one was way better than mine. It, 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 it did make sense. The part where I dip back into the text is funny too. So 
he he uh, went into the rubble with waves to steal cloudy days. One of the Flying Legion's heavy planes had been damaged. <laughs> waves are brutal, man. <laughs> Wet sneakers are heavy. So in addition to uh, following Hannah's Mad Lib advice, I have also written passages, three specifically, from non-existent Sky Captain books that I may end up writing. Johnny, would you go ahead and read the first passage there? I have a question before we begin. Yes, Hannah, what's up? Were these passages written without the concept that we would read them aloud, or are they specific to us? The third one, I was like, Hannah must read this one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I get Yeah, that was my question, and that is my concern. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Johnny, take it away. Enter. The bishop's cawing voice slipped through the crack under his heavy oak door, whimpering as an autumn sullen draft. Polly pushed it open with sounds of effort. So small and frail were her reporter's arms. Uh, yeah, the women thing. <laughs> Shame on you. I was being true to the text. Yeah, that, no, that's on brand. <clears throat> she immediately understood why talking caused the holy man such effort. Sitting in unwashed priest's robes, the man's head was completely submerged in a box of teal liquid. There was near to no flesh upon his head, but a skull with skin and fat stuck upon it in spots like clinging mange. Tiny robots moved through the liquid, scrubbing and massaging these spots, desperately trying to salvage the last signifiers of life upon the bishop's face. It was a chilling visage, and Polly wished desperately that Sky Captain were here for this interview. Alas, he had been called away to do battle with the placenoid. The placentoid. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Alas, he had been called away to do battle with the placentoid, a zoologist who, in his efforts to document the mad genius of the modern age, had become obsessed with the late Dr. Tottenkopf's genetically engineered animals. Breeding them to his own ends, Placentoid, nay, Henderson, consumed the afterbirth of his own creations, and now had Gotham tied in the lethal knot of his city-sized umbilical cord. Sounds like a good book, Gross. huh? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. <hooked. laughs> I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. All right, I'll take the second one. Sky Captain's wake jiggled the wheat stalks of Nampa, Idaho. Here, where the ground elevation never wavered, where nothing but crops peppered the land, one could fly 20 feet off the ground endlessly. Here, where every third cloud in the picturesque sky was a sentient ship possessed by deceased cannibals, one must do so. Occasionally, Sky Captain would spot their blood splatter on the wheat, then spot the lifeless body besides it, then the gaping hole in its sternum, where the man's consciousness cartridge had ejected, flying into the fake cloud above ordering the ship's artillery be loaded. The cloud, now armed for vengeance, a premeditated ghost. Then lastly, he would notice the blood around their mouths. Savages. Sky Captain was no stranger to flying this low. It had been a necessity in the Battle of the Channel, in which a malevolent seaweed had breached the walls of the historic underground Zeppelin track connecting England and France. Each frond of the seaweed possessed a unique personality, and Sky Captain had learned and exploited their internal family dynamics to cause the flora to self-terminate. It had even been necessary to seduce one frond. Though that one causes no further trouble, 
Travelers have seen it swaying forlornly as the Hindenburg Seven passes. I like how each of these is about two separate villain adventures. <laughs> I The thing I love about the Sky Captain book is that it's like something nutso is going on. And then during it, Sky Captain will be like, oh yeah, and this is the time like I fought a man whose hands were guitars. Are we up to to more Hindenburgs now? What, how many Hindenburgs was it in the book? Were we up to seven? It was three. Yeah, it was three. Okay. Well, now they've got a full line of zeppelins going yeah, back and yeah. forth all the time. Yeah, I have a works. concept also of like which Sky Captain books these come from, and that was definitely like Sky Captain Eleven, <laughs> in which he's like much older, and there have been many more Hindenburgs. So, what do we think of that one? We want to read that book. Yeah, I'd read that book. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm kind of more intrigued by the sentient kelp than the robot cloud aliens. But I think I just had an easier grasp on what their deal was. I'm intrigued by Sky Captain going to Idaho. It's like, ooh, what's he <laughs> going to find there? That is fun. These uh, guys in the wheat, they're not aliens. They're, they're some sort of... Uh, civilization that has found a way to while living basically be like and when i die this is how my my consciousness will carry on oh so they're like idaho cult people exactly and but and they figured they're it out for real and they're like bent on vengeance they're like make sure that my my cloud ship is programmed to kill anyone who comes near me cool yeah totes totally totally but totally. speaking of aliens oh my god i'm so nervous <laughs> this is long this is pretty long but uh, and I'm sorry, Hannah, but I just had to have you do this one. All right, Hannah. Okay, immediately, is this a prequel? What is this? <laughs> no, no, this is this takes place in the present day. This is going to take me like 20 minutes because I can't keep it together. No one's ever asked me to read original fiction out loud before. <laughs> hey, you're the one always saying fanfic's so great. I'm it fully great. into I'm it now. I'm so in support of you. I've just never been asked to read it out loud in front of other people before. <laughs> Especially when you don't know where it's going. Exactly. Dex blew out the candles on his 16th birthday cake. They were steam candles, as steam had informed technology's advancement much more than fire or electricity. Happy birthday, ordered his fiancée, Frankie Cook. Good for them. Her, <laughs> her calloused hands spun the steering mechanism on their small craft. It obediently banked and swerved with grace into the dry, empty Marianas Trench. Oh, water, water, where have you gone? Frankie muttered under her breath. I appreciate that you got a cake in the middle of such an important mission, Dex brimmed with adoration. Of course, Frankie offered. I've always taken your advances. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. <clears throat> sorry. The, the, it's, it's telling the best line in anything I wrote is a line from the book. <laughs> I think this is perfectly good writing. Thank you. I just, hold on. Whew, that caught me by surprise. Of course, Frankie offered. I've always taken your advances very seriously. As they descended into the trench, the eyes of extraterrestrials gazed upon them. Amidst an alien invasion of Earth years prior, humanity made a crucial discovery about their aggressors. The Bovinians could breathe underwater, could eat a person's memories, could stop a human's heart with a kiss. But for all their power, they could not climb up steps. Because they're cows? Because they're bovinians. <laughs> this has been me all day just laughing at my own jokes, just alone. I'm really tickled. I'm genuinely tickled. The entire army was promptly tied to stones, 
and dropped into the ocean's deepest recess to live separately, though in peace. The, sh- <laughs> <laughs> the ship passed what appeared to be a hot yoga studio. We're on enemy turf now, Dex remarked. Should we call in Sky Captain? I've been meaning to tell you, Dex. Joe didn't take the news of the engagement well. Frankie thought back to their showdown with the Fiat, a telepathic madman who could plant the thought in anyone's mind that whatever they valued was, in fact, only symbolic in value. Proximity to this man bred massive depression, and he had long ago been pushed with a bulldozer into the deep sewers of the city. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I wish that the Sky Captain book was this funny. <laughs> I, I, this third one is like the least in keeping with the style of the book. It's I'm so just, funny. Though. I'm just throwing like, like I mean, fittingly uh, with our season premiere, I'm just throwing like Schumacher Batman villains into this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy has a lot going on. Whew. Frankie had enlisted Joe's help when she dropped an item down a storm drain and could not venture down to retrieve it, lest the sight of the Fiat cause her to never resurface. Joe, as solution, <laughs> produced a... <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no, I, I am hanging on every word. <laughs> Joe, as solution, produced a contraption vastly much more impressive than his submergible aircraft or any gadget of Dex's invention. A 150-pound pull retrieving magnet from Harbor Freight. <laughs> we should redo our logo so it includes the magnet. I think, I think so. I think so. <laughs> the immense power of the magnet pulled the item up with ease. But Joe's face had fallen when he saw that the item Frankie had dropped was a diamond ring. While Frankie recalled this, a mechanical dragon <laughs> leapt from the depths of the trench, discharging an ultrasonic beam. No! <laughs> Oh my god! I can't do this. I'm not reading this. How dare you? I scrolled down into the next page of the Google Doc. And I say, no, sir. This is the moment when I would close my tab of online fanfiction reading and go, no! All right, I'll take over. I hate you. While Frankie recalled this, a mechanical dragon leapt from the depths of the trench, discharging an ultrasonic beam from its mouth like a column of fire. Dex's skull shattered a moment before hers. Fuck you. The last thing Frankie saw was Dex's eyeballs, blown from his head like bullets, about to shoot her own eyes out. His blood felt like a baptism. I hate you. Well, and that's a wrap on Giovanni Ribisi, I guess. (laughs) Someone had to go shoot Avatar 2, I guess. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Oh, happy season two, everybody. Good work. (laughs) 